I am captain of the ship, and it will follow whatever course I set for it, or I will order its destruction. You're bluffing. I will destroy it. Bridge to all decks, red alert, red alert. We have an incoming Enterprise incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris, and I demand political asylum in this podcast right now. Well, you've got it because we are a great company with this podcast. After we are done with our deep dive, if you haven't already figured it out, of Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, we are going to be joined by a very special guest. Lou Antonio, who plays Lokai, will join us for an interview right after we are done with Act 4. But wow, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield is a love-it-or-hated episode. It is an episode that people unfairly criticized for being too on-the-nose and lacking in subtlety. But Steve, I have a feeling that you have different feelings about let that be your last battlefield. That's absolutely right, Scott. And I'm going to do something that I have never, ever done in the entire history of Enterprise Incidents, which is I feel it's important to just put out a little bit of a warning because we're about to step into our last battlefield and this deals with issues of race. And I don't think there's any more controversial, upsetting, difficult topics in our country. And so I'm going to put out a small surgeon's warning that I don't see how we could talk about this episode without talking about issues of race. So I'm putting that out there right up front. Well, that is a that is a worthy warning because over the years, over the last, you know, almost 55 years since this episode first premiered, whenever Star Trek has been used as an example of a, of a show that dealt with social issues, this is the episode they always refer to. You always see that classic image of Beale and Loki on the bridge of the Enterprise when Kirk is uh, giving the self-destruct. And uh, this is definitely an episode that has come up in more recent years. So so it was relevant then, it is relevant now, and we are going to get into why throughout our deep dive of Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. But before we get into that, Steve... You know, there is something we always do at the end of the show that I wanted to just bring forth to the Mm. beginning of the show, because sometimes people kind of tune out when they know that we're done with our conversation. And it's really, really important for people to know where they can find us and how they can support us. So make sure if you are listening to Enterprise Incidents, make sure you follow us on our Facebook page, which is Enterprise Incidents. Make sure you go to Apple Podcasts and write a review for Enterprise Incidents. Let everyone know how you feel about Enterprise Incidents. Hopefully it is a five-star review. Please do write that review. That really, really helps us out. And Steve, how can people support us on Anchor? So the easiest way is right on every single episode of the podcast, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube. There are show notes that talk about the episode. It talks about social media. But the very first thing on the show notes is a link to Anchor, where you can subscribe to the show, supporting us for as little as 99 cents a month or as much as $9.99 a month. And we'd just like to think of it as a, as a tip jar. If you enjoyed the show, a little help will help us keep making it. Well, it is hard to believe 
that we are at this point, because I remember, Steve, when we first started talking about doing this podcast, this was an episode that we talked about doing. It feels like it was so long ago, but now here we are, and we got there, dare I say it, in the wink of an eye. (laughs) We got to to let that be your last battlefield. I know this is an episode that you're very much looking forward to getting into, but how have you felt about Battlefield over these decades? So I've always loved it. I've always, and, and it's funny. What are there season three things in this? Absolutely. Are there plot points that are really wonky? Completely, and we'll definitely bring them up. But for me, this is like a formative episode because the idea that science fiction can approach complicated human ideas and use science to explore them is fundamental to how I think about things. It's fundamental to the kinds of stories I've always wanted to tell, uh, things that explore ideas. And the most interesting thing to me is in doing this show with you is the discovery, which I think I've mentioned on the show before, that, oh, I actually think the genius of Star Trek, one of them, is that it is both a liberal and conservative show. And I think this episode exemplifies that more than almost any other, because it is exploring things from multiple angles. That's a really, really excellent point, and one that I completely agree with. And another aspect of doing this podcast is the way that we've been able to look at Star Trek as a serialized show, even though it is an episodic series. And there are things about Let That Be Your Last Battlefield that go Mm. right back to the very beginning. And there are things about Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, more overt things that look look ahead to things that we are about sure. to see, especially in one of the Star Trek movies. But I've always loved this episode. You know, there's always been this criticism, Steve, about Battlefield. That is, it is a heavy-handed episode. It's as subtle as a sledgehammer. I mean, I guess in some ways I understand where that criticism comes from. But it is such an effective episode to me that I don't care about that stuff. I think that what it has to say is so strong. And like you pointed out, that the way the way it approaches things from two, two different sides without judging either one of them. And the performances, especially on the parts, on the parts, plural, of not only William Shatner, but Frank Gorshin in particular. Absolutely. Stand out in this episode. So it's one I've always liked. I just have a vivid memory of when I saw this for the first time because I'll never forget the first image of when Loki steps out of the shuttlecraft uh, hangar deck and he you just see one side of his face and then he falls and then you see his dynamic pigmentation uh, or dramatic is the word that Kirk uses. But Let That Be Your Last Battlefield aired on January 10th, 1969. It was the 70th episode to air but it was the 71st episode to film. That's right, Steve. We are now in the 70s. Wow, it's nuts. We have 10 more episodes of Star Trek to go before we finish our voyage of the original series. But yes, so let that be your last battlefield. The 71st episode to film was shot in six and a half days. So it went just a half day over schedule. Now here's a bottle show where they were clearly saving money, yeah, but not as much money as you would think because the total cost for Battlefield was $177,102, which means it was $1,200 under budget. I thought this was going to come in like ten dollars or $12,000 under budget, right. but because it did go over schedule, it went over schedule for two reasons. One of them is that revised script pages came in literally – at the last moment, mm. they had to keep waiting for them. Also, 
as you can imagine, looking at the makeup on Lou Antonio and on Frank Gorshin, you know, it's really, really hard to keep that going without it smudging or showing the skin, you know, in any way. So, so that was complex. So that is why it went, it went over schedule and it came in just, just a little bit under budget, but at least the score was tracked. The episode was filmed between October 4th to October 14th, 1968, directed by Judd Taylor, who had also directed the paradise syndrome and wink of an eye, the story by Gene Kuhn, but it is credited to Lee Cronin, his pseudonym that he used in the third season. And we talk now about how some of the more recent episodes, this is the last episode of whatever. Well, this is the last episode that Gene Kuhn mm-hmm. was involved with. It is also the last episode in which Robert H. Justman worked on oh. as a co-producer. So a lot of lasts with Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. The teleplay was by Oliver Crawford, who was the credited writer of the Galileo 7. Mm. And I didn't know this, but Crawford was a victim of the Hollywood blacklist for refusing to testify to the House Un-American Activities Committee to expose communists in Hollywood. I did. I don't know if I mentioned that in Galileo 7, but I wanted to make sure I mentioned it now. So Kuhn wrote his story outline on March 11th, 1968, when it was called Down from Heaven. Oliver Crawford wrote his first draft teleplay in which the title was revised to Down from Heaven, Up from Above on September 2nd. Arthur Singer did his rewrite between October 2nd through October 8th, and Fred Freiberger did his script polish, his revised final draft on October 10th. So October 10th, right in the middle of shooting. So obviously that's what the pages they were waiting on Exactly was, yes. was Fred Freiberger's uh, polish. So uh, let's talk about what was going on in the world, because there are a few things that actually kind of parallel this episode. As you said, it was filmed from the 4th to the 14th of October in 1968. And on the 5th, policemen of the Royal Ulster Constabulary in Derry, Ireland, attacked a group of demonstrators marching for the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association. Wow. This event is thought of as the beginning of what would come to be known as the Troubles. And even though the Troubles is not about race, it is absolutely parallel to the things we see here. An establishment and a group of people fighting for civil rights and just something that they could not get around. And even to this day, it still remains issues. Mm-hmm. In our, um, on October 6th in Huntington Park, California, not too far from where I am right now, the very first service of the Metropolitan Community Church was held, and that is the first church in the United States that had a positive ministry for gay and lesbian members. Mm-hmm. That church today has over 44,000 men- members. Here's one that's right in our industry, Scott. On October 7th, Jack Valenti, president of the Motion Picture Association of America, announced a brand new rating system. Oh, that's where it started. Yeah. Yep. Replaced the Hayes Code from 1934. And under the Hayes Code, they either approved it or didn't approve it. And they said, no, no, we can do better than that. And we ended up with four ratings, uh, G for general audiences, M for mature audiences, R for restricted, and X kids under 16 prohibited obviously that's going to evolve as time goes on sure is <laughs> on october 8th franco zeffirelli's romeo and juliet was released on october 9th and this is four days after that incident in Derry, 2000 students marched from belfast university in a massive act of civil disobedience 
On October 11th, Apollo 7, this is the first manned Apollo mission launched, and they went up to test docking maneuvers with the lunar orbiter. Wow, Apollo 7 got the Apollo program back off the ground after the fire from January of 1967. Very milestone date, yes. On October 12th, Equatorial Guinea was granted independence from Spain. This is the 38th African country to gain independence from a colonial power since World War II. The opening ceremony of the Olympic Games in Mexico City also happened on October 11th. And I'm going to, this is an event we're going to talk about next week, but I'm going to put it right here, which is we're just a couple of days away from Tommy Smith and John Carlos raising their fists with black gloves in the Black Power salute after winning the gold medal and the bronze medal in the 200 meter race. Wow. Yep. That's That's an unforgettable image, that photo. And one more unforgettable thing happened on October 14th in San Francisco, California, at Mount Zion Hospital at 6.52 p.m., I was born. Whoa! Well, happy birthday to you. So let that be your last battlefield is your Star Trek episode. That's right. That's wow. Filming while I was born. It's funny. I asked my mom recently. I said, so when you did, did you guys watch Star Trek when you were at the hospital? Because by the way, the episode that was playing that week is in the children's show lead. (laughs) So you go from like one of my favorites was being shot while one of my least favorites was uh, being aired. And my mom said, no, we never really watched Star Trek until you until you started watching it oh so 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 okay so the episode that filmed while you were born was let that be your last battlefield the episode that aired the week you were born was and the children shall lead correct okay because the episode that shot that aired when i was born was played as stepchildren but we I just got to it. We, we haven't got. Do you want to save it and we can announce it when we get there? Yeah, I'm going to save it. But it is not an episode that I was happy to hear. <laughs> you know, but one more thing. So so, uh, you know, today, as we're recording this deep dive of Battlefield, the date is September 15th, 2022. So happy 55th anniversary to the very first airing of a mock time. Oh, wow. The season two opener for the original series. So that is a, an episode that you should go back and listen to our deep dive on Enterprise Incidents if you have not already heard it. But just wanted to throw that date out there as well. Amazing. So we get into our last battlefield. Let's get into it. <laughs> so we start in the teaser, and this happens a few times where in the log, we hear about this mission that ends up really not being what the episode is about. But in this case, there's some planet Arianus and they've got some bacteria that needs to be decontaminated. So we're heading in that direction. Doesn't seem like there's going to be any kind of problems in th- except, oh, there's some sort of vessel out there. There is a vessel out there. And once again, we have an episode that really doesn't have anything to do with the overall mission of the Enterprise to explore strange new worlds, which is something they end up doing anyway by default. So that's a a very, very interesting twist. But we have three hours and four minutes left to go before we get to Arianus. And then there on the sensors, uh, it looks like a Starfleet shuttlecraft, one that was stolen from Starbase 4. Captain, there is one living creature aboard, humanoid. He is either injured or ill. The craft shows internal atmospheric leakage. The creature may be suffocating. So everything that we see on the screen in the original version of Battlefield, uh, all those shots of the shuttlecraft, as we talked about before, whenever we see an image of the shuttlecraft, that was all shot for the Galileo 7. That was the only time they used, uh, they shot footage 
of that model. So everything we've seen after that is is that shuttle. And when you see the term Galileo, even after it burned up in the atmosphere, that's why. But at least for the revised visual effects, they updated the name on the shuttlecraft, and it actually says that it is from Starbase 4. You know what's interesting to me is that back when Star Trek aired, even though it was a show that was perceived as not successful, more people were watching Star Trek back then than were watching basically anything today. And yet there is so much more money being spent today than anyone would. I mean, you think about, you know, on Amazon, there's the Lord of the Rings show or you know, <laughs> the House of the Dragons or things like that. They would. Can you imagine them going, oh, let's just reuse that special effect of a dragon? They would never do it. They never would never do it. do it. It's really amazing. I mean, when you talk about a, an episode like this that cost $177,000, and then you you look at the uh, Game of Thrones prequel or the Lord of the Rings series that costs God knows how, how much, uh, can you imagine the original Star Trek series with a budget like that? I mean, yeah. unbelievable. Well, except the one thing is because they didn't have the special, the spectacle, they had to rely on a story. Absolutely, you know that's why I mean, it holds up. All the things we love about Star Trek, none of them are this. Never, not never do. I don't think we've ever said. We've said a few of the special effects are pretty good, but none of us has said, "Oh my God, I totally watch this episode for the special effects." That's not happening. The know? only time I I really am, go back to an episode and really take in the visual effects is with the original effects of the Tholian web. Right, but that's it. <laughs> yeah. But we grab the shuttlecraft and a tractor beam. We head down to the shuttle bay, the, the hangar deck, and it's pressurizing. And the door opens. And the first thing we see is a completely black profile of the face. And then this man collapses. And we see the other side of his face is completely white. Okay, let me ask you a question, Steve. So do you remember, I know, you know, I ask you this a lot. Do you remember when you saw this first time with that? But do you have a vivid memory of maybe maybe seeing let that be your last battlefield when you were younger, like what your thoughts were when you saw Loki for the first time. I, I obviously, I, as I've said, I don't remember the first time, but I do definitely remember what a powerful impression this episode made on me. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things, by the way, is that for the vast majority of this episode, you don't know that it's about race or that idea. It's certainly political. But we actually don't know that. And that's something I hadn't really thought about because when you watch something over and over again, I know from the beginning that's what it's about. But if I watched it for the first time, I wouldn't know that. I would See, just look t- at this weird guy. I'm so glad you brought that up. Well, first of all, just just my own vivid memory of Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. I do remember the first time I saw it. Because when you see that image of Lokai when he steps out of the hangar deck and you see that image of, of his the side of his face, it's black. And then he falls to the ground and you see that he's white and then he tilts his head and you see that he's right down the middle, half black, half white. My first image of that, seeing Battlefield for the first time, I thought, oh, it's a disease episode. This guy is dying of a disease that made him look half black, half white. That was my first image of it. And your point, Steve, something that never occurred to me until this moment this this epiphany that we are capturing live on Enterprise Incidents right now, that we did not know that this was going to be a rest episode until maybe the halfway point. A little. That. I, I, that. I will t- I will tell you I I can tell you right now what it is. I believe Where, it's thirty 
36 minutes and 20 seconds into the episode. So you're like like more than two-thirds, uh, almost three-quarters of the way through the episode. Yep. Okay, so now, now this is where it is occurring to me, Steve, that this is a quintessential Gene Kuhn story. Yes, absolutely. Right? How many times have we watched, uh, you could probably count, where we watch an episode and we think it's one thing, like with Devil in the Dark, oh, this monster, we got to kill it. And then there's a reveal to it that flips it over. And they're like, oh, it's a mother protecting its eggs or metamorphosis where it's this energy force that's holding us here. We got to kill it so we can get off the planet and get Hedford back to the Enterprise. Oh, wait, it's a female in love with the man. It flips the episode over. So, yeah, we'll talk more when we get to this point. But there is that point in the episode when you realize what this episode is really about. And I love the re- the uh, sort of confused reactions that Kirk and Spock have. But that is what makes let that be your last battlefield, a quintessential Gene Kuhn episode. That is a great observation. I, I, yeah, I, I hadn't thought about the Gene Kuhn aspect of it, but you're totally right. And I want to say something right here. If I have any mission on this particular episode of our show, it is to explode the idea that this episode is not subtle. Is that I think what ha- the, I think this episode has so much stuff in it that actually is complicated and not subtle at all, and I think people just jump to what the basic message is, and that certainly isn't subtle. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff that is, and we get into some of it right in Act One, where we come back in sickbay, and the first part of the conversation is, did this happen naturally? Like, why is his skin like this? And McCoy says, yeah, it looks like it happened naturally, and their best guess is that this alien is that often unaccountable rarity, a mutation, one of a kind. Well, what's interesting, Steve, is that in the earlier versions, going back to Gene Kuhn's initial story outline, it did not involve these two characters that are divided down you know, vertically, mm. half, half white and half black. In Gene Kuhn's original outline, it dealt with an angel chasing the devil. Oh. So the angel's character was Mikkel, and the devil's character was Satrana. And the episode ended with Mikkel and Satrana returning to their home world to find that their people have made peace. And they now view the two of these characters as pathetic individuals. Oh, that's very, very different. Very yeah. different ending. Also, as they were getting close, like, like right about when they were doing pre-production on the episode, Judd Taylor had already been hired to direct Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. And on Monday, September 30th, 1968, Judd Taylor had the great idea of making the characters half white and half black. You say September 30th? September 30th, 1968. They were about to film, which is a big reason why... They, they had to do a rewrite and a polish that came in very, very late. Now, originally, uh, the, the quick idea of doing them half white and half black was they were going to be separated uh, vertically. So the top half was white on one character, and the top half was, half was black on the other character. But then Judd Taylor said, no, I think it should be right down the middle. So that's where, that's where the makeup came in, and they had the guys wear gloves. So the only thing that had to be made up was their faces. But this all came in literally at the last minute, and it was Judd Taylor's idea. And that is why they ran back and did rewrites, and they came in as late as they did. So 
four days before shooting to make like a fundamental change. Huge. It's just totally nuts. Uh, to, to be really clear, if it was uh hor- if it was you know white on top and black on bottom, you wouldn't see the bottom unless the guys were wearing shorts. Well, so they were they were they were going to divide it by wardrobe. Like ah. the wardrobe, like they were going to wear like, you know, like a white shirt and the other guy was going to wear yeah. a black shirt. But yeah, this is much that, more effective, much more effective. And it also just goes to show, you know, I, I think I maybe have said to you that the name of my company is Team Effort Films. And the reason it's that is that nobody makes movies by themselves. So Gene Kuhn has a great idea, but you need the director come in and wait. I got another great idea. <laughs> yeah. People have to appreciate that. And they have to come up with a solution. A lot of stuff going on. Your prognosis, doctor. Well, I can't give you one, Jim. I've never worked on anyone like him or anything like him. Yet you are pumping him full of your noxious potions as if he were a human. <laughs> uh, McCoy's reaction is great. What about, when a doubt the book prevails, Mr. Spock? Blood is blood, even when it's green like yours. And I love how, you know, this is a quintessential Spock-McCoy moment, one that we have, that's somewhat endearing by this point. And I like the look on Kirk's face. Kirk is like actually amused by the exchange. And then they talk about the incredible recuperative powers of this guy. And slowly but surely, he wakes up. Wakes up and Loki is played by Lou Antonio. Lou Antonio is a three-time Emmy nominee, all three of those times for directing. Uh, mm. He directed Something for Joey, Silent Victory, The Kitty O'Neill Story, and Chicago Hope. And as a director, he directed at multiple episodes of shows like The Partridge Family, The Rockford Files, Picket Fences, Dawson's Creek, Party of Five, and Boston Legal with William Shatner. Wow. As an actor on TV, he appeared in Naked City, The Fugitive, Gunsmoke, and The Rookies. And on the big screen, you can recognize him, even without all that makeup, as Coco in Cool Hand Luke. Oh, wow. What a career. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a pretty impressive career. Sure is. Uh, You're aboard the Starship Enterprise. I've heard of it. It's in the uh, United Fleet of Planets. Federation. I think this is a great detail because what it says is he stole a shuttlecraft from a civilization he barely knew about. And also, I remember even even to this day, look, you know, we've talked before, like we were just talking about this in a wink of an eye, how the Skullosians speak perfect English and, you, you know, you just kind of go with it. But in the case of Beale and Loki, it's like such perfect English, you know, with even a little bit of an accent, like it, it's it is kind of like really he speaks English like like there's not even like a an alien accent there but I guess you got to just go with it. I, I mean that's Star Trek. I mean there's a certain point there's a there's a great list of things maybe I mentioned on the show before. It's from the great screenwriter William Goldman and it's on all of the stupid things that happen in movies that are coincidences <laughs> like someone pull is you know late to work and they find a parking space right in front. You turn on the TV and the news story happens to be exactly about something that affects your life. All of these things are really really stupid. And what William Goldman says is, yeah, they are stupid, but do you really want to watch Tom Cruise driving around looking for a parking place? <laughs> you know, like they, they exist to, to get us to the story rather than being worried constantly about translation. Don't you usually know whose property you've stolen? And he very aggressively, I think, says, I am not a thief. Yeah, he gets very defensive very, very fast. You're being very loose with your accusations and drawing conclusions without any facts. And then Kirk gets into it. And says, yeah. well, I do know you made off with a ship that didn't belong to you. <laughs> I do not make off with things. My need gave me the right to use the ship. Mark the word, sir. The use of it. 
How do you feel about Loki? Uh, well, I immediately don't like him. Yes. I immediately don't like him. He is showing no remorse. He is showing no attempt to engage with his, uh, his saviors. And it gets very, very defensive, very, very fast. I don't like him. He has a major chip on his shoulder. Big time. He's definitely takes the sort of victim mentality of my victimhood allows me to do things outside of the law, essentially. Like normal rules don't apply to me because I am so abused. So here's the first point I want to make about why this isn't just a simple racism is bad story. And, mm -hmm. and to be real clear, I think the enterprise incidents can say we think racism is bad. Yes. <laughs> but but if you think about what other stories about racism, particularly of the time, like, for instance, just a year before, we had two movies that went up for Oscars, both of which covered on the cinephiles. Guess who's coming to dinner and in the heat of the night, both starring Sidney Poitier in both of them. He plays incredibly smart, talented people. It's very, very clear that you are supposed to like him, mm. particularly in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, where he's basically perfect. Yeah. And so because you present someone who's perfect, any idea of not liking that guy is obviously wrong. You know, in the heat of the night, he plays a more complicated character, but he's also more confronted with more direct racism. And there's the moment where the rich guy slaps him in the face and he immediately slaps the guy back and you go, yes, yeah. because racism is wrong. And it's obviously wrong. That's not what this episode is doing. They're not presenting you a guy that's likable. They're not presenting you a guy that you could admire. They're presenting you a guy instantly within the very first line he speaks that you are designed to not like. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That creates a completely different kind of movie because it means, yeah, we're going to say racism is wrong. That's going to be the, the big message of the thing. But we're also going to say that the victim of racism is can be a jerk, you know, and not likable. Well, well, also when you contrast, you know, that's a great question to ask when you first see Loki, how do you feel about him? Because I'm, I'm going to hold my answer for how do you think feel about Beal when you first see him. Absolutely. Which is well, going to be a little different, but we'll get It's going to be a little different. And, you know, we, we he, he does finally say that he's grateful for the rescue, <laughs> very begrudgingly, uh, <laughs> and mentions that he's from the planet Sharon, and we hear music. And <laughs> this has happened so many times in Star Trek where they say, That's in the southernmost part of the galaxy, in an uncharted quarter. And I'm like, if it's uncharted, how do you, you know, know where it is? How do you know where it is? <laughs> but okay. We'll take you to Starbase, where you'll face a very serious charge. The charge is trifling. I would have returned the ship as soon as I had. What were you going to do? You monotone humans are all alike. First you condemn and then attack. So I went from not liking him to really not liking him in a matter of moments. Well, and, and the thing that he just did was go, look, essentially, if you're not on my side, you're the enemy. Mm -hmm. That's what he said. That's right. Do we see people saying things like that today? Absolutely. <laughs> All the time. The time. Yes. And this is where I go. I think this episode has like it's line to line has things that apply to us today. Yeah. And can we say that there are people on both sides of the political divide who say, if you're not with me, you're the enemy? Absolutely. And this Absolutely has been going on. Can. You know, this has been going on since this episode has aired on a, on a regular basis. It's not like it just was in the 60s and now it came back in more recent years. It's been a through line. It is just a uh, an evil that is 
always there. And that's another reason why this episode is just so right on point. And then they're trying to ask him more questions, and he aggressively says, Now then, I insist, I'm extremely tired, made so by your vindictive cross-examinations. Yeah, I really don't like Lokai, and he's being very, very defensive and and just really kind of stirring the pot already. Well, and contrast him with Khan, who literally has the same moment. Lying in sickbay, Kirk is trying to answer some questions, and he says, I grow fatigued. Right. Khan is different. Khan is, uh, there's a charm to him. And there's also a fascination to Khan because he mm-hmm. is a man out of, out of their past. And Khan knows how to convince people of who he, you know, he knows how to present a version of himself that's acceptable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Lokai does not. Right. Right. He's not capable of it. Kirk here. Captain, contact with alien ship, sir. I'll be right there. Notify Mr. Spock. And we head up to the bridge. And now we do the, I'm assuming, I don't have any money for special effects, so apparently the ship's invisible. Okay, actually, I have to say, the way that Judd Taylor directed this, the way that the scene is written, building up to the reveal that it's invisible is actually well-staged and effective to the point where it makes me forget that this was clearly a decision that was made to keep the budget down. In fact, more than any other decision, more than any other creative decision that was made throughout the three years of Star Trek, of the original series, especially in the third season, when they were really, really cost conscious, this is the most obvious decision to save money. But there's that music sting when Spock says, In fact, it's invisible. You know what? It works. I mostly agree with you. I also like, by the way, that, that Kirk asks about whether it could be a Romulan ship, because mm-hmm. then that hook cooks up to actual other continuity in the show. My only criticism, I think, goes on too long. In fact, there are several sequences in this episode where I go, man, I wish we could have had more loci Beal story things going on than sort of, it seems like the script was a little short. And so they extended some things maybe to, to pat it out. And you're um, correct. They did do that. <laughs> um, but it's not just that it's invisible because at a moment it turns straight towards them and they try to take evasive action. They put up their shields and it's coming on a collision course. And guess what? It slams right into them. It just disintegrated. But not before it deposited an alien presence. That's what Spock says. Yep. And then Kirk looks around and I love he goes where? And then you hear a voice before you see it, which is an effect that I've said many times through our conversations that I always love. You hear a voice say, right here, Captain. And Kirk looks shocked. He swings his command chair around and there in front of him is another individual that resembles Loki, except the colors are reverse. Meet Beale, played by Frank Gorshin. Did you know that Frank Gorshin is an Emmy nominee for his portrayal of the Riddler on Batman? I didn't, but he certainly deserves it. I I think we got to take a full moment for Frank Gorshin. I think he's one of the greatest guest stars in all of Star Trek. He is so charismatic. I love I love him as the Riddler. I don't know if you've ever watched any of stand-up, but he's like an old-school stand-up comic on Ed Sullivan and stuff like that. I... I love Frank Gorshin. Absolutely I, love him. I, I agree with you. In fact, Steve, I think one of the reasons that I love 
this episode, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, as much as I do, is because of Frank Gorshin's performance. But yes, he is an Emmy nominee for Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series for Batman. As you mentioned, he is a stand-up comedian and an impressionist who performed on The Ed Sullivan Show many times, including, including, are you ready for this? It's not the one where Kirk where Shatner was on, is it? No, no, uh, no, no. It's, oh, is it's, it the Beatles? It's the Beatles. That's correct. Yes. So Frank Gorshin was on the Ed Sullivan show on February 9th, 1964, the same day as the Beatles. Can you imagine being on that show? You're being watched by 73 million people. A lot of them teenagers who are like we want the beatles we want the beatles and he's standing there doing his impersonations of like james cagney and like no one cares because they just want to see the beatles but yes that's uh that's a hell of a claim to fame he was also on tv shows like have gun will travel the untouchables charlie's angels and he was in my really favorite episode of buck rogers in the 25th century the plot to kill a city he was also on the big screen in the batman movie also, Invasion of the Saucermen and Bells Are Ringing with Dean Martin. Hmm. So you said something just a moment ago that I want to I want to circle back to, which is that the coloring is reversed on Frank Gorshin on Beale, that one is black on the left, one is black on the right. Do you think anybody watching this show for the first time would have noticed that? No, I didn't notice it. I didn't either. I thought they were absolutely from the same race. It wasn't until the next act when you see them side by side that you go, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. Yeah. There's a great shot later on where they really illustrate it. But no, I would never, never have noticed that. But that look that Kirk gives him, like when Kirk swings around and he sees Beale and he says, explain Spock, one of a kind. So that that image of of Kirk just being like in shock. Like, this guy's just standing on the bridge of the Enterprise. But uh, I'm totally with you about Frank Gorshin, one of the best guest stars of the original series. I am Beale, of the planet Sharon, no doubt. (laughs) And here's the thing about Beale. Beale, I would say, well, let me ask you, what is your initial impression of Beale? Okay, you asked me a question before. When I met Loki for the first time, what did I think? I didn't like him. Now I'm meeting Beale for the first time. You know what? I kind of like them. So here we have the oppressed race being not likable and the oppressor, the representative of the oppressor race being likable. That is, this is where I go. This ain't, I mean, this is subtle. This is a complicated way of looking at these issues. Right. Now, Um, now let me ask you a question. Okay. You know, there's some dialogue that comes later on. So, so here you have these two characters, which are clearly from the same race, despite the fact that their colors are reversed. But the setup of the characters depicts Loki as the quote-unquote black character and Beale as the quote-unquote white character. And we're established, we've established Loki as defensive and and almost uh, desperate and and not likable. And you're depicting Beale as sort of a more composed, yes, uh, authoritative, seemingly rational character, and it, and it isn't until the episode progresses, and when you get to the halfway point, when you get to the 
to the point that you were talking about earlier, yeah. when both of their demeanors, when both of their perspectives start to to meet in the middle. And the thing too is like, yes, we could say that this represents, you know, the white people versus the black people. We could say it represents majorities versus minorities. We can also say it's establishment versus anti-establishment mm-hmm. because there's, it's not just in 1968 that we have civil rights issues in terms of race, but we also have the free speech movement. We also have the anti-war movement. And we have to remember like, this is three weeks after the democratic national convention. Oh, sure. And it's like, what happens there? And, and of course, the, the trial of the Chicago 7s, it's way in the future. But basically, there are a bunch of people who say the whole system is broken. And if the whole system is broken, we don't have to obey any of the rules, particularly someone like Ab- Abby Hoffman um, is, you know, just totally flaunting all the rules. And the establishment comes down and, you know, kicks their asses, basically. And so that's really, really recent. And the thing is, does a lot of the mainstream feel comfortable with Abby Hoffman? No. No, they They, don't. Including mainstream Democrats. They don't like him. And one of the other guys of, of that group is Bobby Seale of the Black Panthers. And does the mainstream feel comfortable with the Black Panthers? Nope. No, they do not. Mm-hmm. And so that's the thing. It's not just exploring race and saying, hey, racism is bad. It's saying there could be people that might be fighting for a cause you believe in that you really don't like and you don't like their methods. And are their methods justified? That's what we're going to get into. In this absolutely. Episode. Yep, absolutely. What happened to your vehicle? It served me long and durably. Unfortunately, the strain of Archer's pursuit has exceeded even its advanced qualities. I was just able to complete this trip and disembark in time, or I would have disintegrated in space with it. There's a formal upper upper class way that Beale speaks. Absolutely. He's very, very different. Like he's there's a he's charming. Yep. Yep. And they ask, what brings you to us? Which is kind of an obvious question, because, you know, like these two guys look alike. You bear precious cargo, Lokai. He's taken refuge aboard this ship. I am here to claim him. That word claim him is very powerful, too. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Kirk picks up on that word claim and he says, no one claims anyone without due process. And where Lokai gets aggressive and defensive when Kirk pushes back, Beale... It softens. He says, my apologies, Captain. I overstepped my powers. Claim is uh, undoubtedly an unfortunate word. And then we find out that he is the chief officer of the Commission on Political Traitors and that Loki was tried and convicted of treason, but escaped. You know, this is very different. This verse meaning of Beale is very, very different than our first meeting with Loki. May I see him, please? He's in sickbay. Remember, since you're aboard the Enterprise, you're bound by its regulations. And Beale very politely says, With your permission, Captain. Very different than, uh, I will answer no more questions. I'm very tired. Well, because one of the things about this, though, is that it's the establishment where we obey the rules and the anti-establishment where the rules are used to oppress us. And so Beale has spent his life working within a system. Now, I think it was probably a very oppressive system. But that oppressive system worked to Beale's advantage, and so Absolutely. he stays within it. Mm-hmm. Sure. So we head down to sickbay. Well, Lokai. And Lokai recognizes that voice right oh, away. Lokai just like sits up, and he's he's got this look on his face like he's ready for battle. 
Captain, you ought to be congratulated. Never before has Loki been rendered so quiescent. And Loki lunges at him. Oh, yeah. Loki just, like, goes right for his throat. Yeah. So later on, we're going to find out that Beale and Loki have, like, superpowers. And I don't know why they're not using them here and why they're not affecting Kirk. And I think the whole whatever the hell their superpowers are, I don't think it makes a a lot of sense. I think it's I, I, I love the story. But those elements of the plot, I think, are yeah, cool. I agree. I agree. I think there's a, there are some contrivances there, yeah, that that again are done uh, to move the story along, but are also done for budgetary reasons. You know, we'll we'll get to that. I will not return to Sharon with him to a land of murdering oppressors. So he's framed what the world of Sharon is for his people. Mm-hmm. I just want to see if I can point out an idea, which is that if you're gonna if you have a problem with the system. There are different ways you could approach that. One is, is you totally work within the system. You try to get a law passed, and that you only do that if you believe that the system on some level works. If you think the system has real problems in it, then you would push against the system, but in protests that are peaceful, and that is Martin Luther King Jr., mm-hmm. you know, and that those kind of protests are very acceptable to the mainstream because they're nonviolent. But let's say you think that the system is more corrupt than that and that that won't work. Well, now you're going to start to push outside the system and you go where Malcolm X says by any means necessary. And he now has a rifle. Now he says we're going to use that for defense. The Black Panthers initially say we're going to use that for defense. It's because the police are out to get us. We have to be armed to protect ourselves from a corrupt police force. So that's taking it to another level. And then the final level is when the system is really, really broken. Well, then you violently take arms against the system, which is how our country was founded by saying we will violently take arms against the system. Where's Loki? Wow. Well, I'll tell you where he's not. Uh, He's not in the Martin Luther King camp. In fact, nobody's in the Martin Luther King camp here. Not in this? No. And again, that's where you go, like, that's what makes this unique, is because because Loki is so unlikable. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Loki is at the very least at the Black Panther camp, but I think he's farther. I think he's at the Weather Underground. I think he is someone who is violently going against this. I, I mean, and, you know, from the moment he opens his eyes, he he turns extremely yep. violent and agitated. Uh, someone who is beyond reason were, as Beale, is a, a seemingly reasonable, at least in appearance at yep. the beginning, but then you realize that, nope, he's just as bad as Lokai, but it takes a while to get there. And you see how this killer repays you, as he repays all his benefactors. Benefactors? He's a liar. I never bumped on this before, but now I did. Benefactors? Who are the benefactors that he's talking about? That's a great question. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I think there's two possibilities here. Either the benefactors are people that look like Loki. Maybe there are three possibilities. They look like Loki, they look like Beale, or he has benefactors in both groups. Are there times where someone, let's say, has sided with the, has mar- marched with Dr. King and supported that cause? And then people within that cause become more extreme. And then those benefactors are no longer happy with where the movement has gone. Uh, well, you know, I can't think of specifics. There are. I mean, I, I will I will just say but, absolutely. But yes, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think there, there are people who may take the cause to the extreme where they 
become at odds with the person leading the charge. Well, and I will say, again, this is not a political show, and my intention is not to be political. And like I said, I think this has both conservative and liberal aspects. But I will say that there are groups on both sides who decided in the last three years that the system was so broken that only violence or destruction of public property would solve it. Mm -hmm. And that's on both sides. And on both sides, there are people who are on that side who were horrified by those actions. I agree on both points. And this is, and that's what it's like one line. This is how, you know, how you treated your benefactors. Raided our homes, tore us from our families, herded us together like cattle and then sold us as slaves. They were savages, Captain. We took them into our hearts, our homes. We educated them. Yes, just education enough to serve the master race. You were the product of our love. You repaid us with murder. And, you know, Beale is starting to get a little more agitated throughout the course of this conversation at sickbay. Both of them are going to come together in in terms of just the level of their rage. Why should a slave show mercy to the enslaver? Slaves. That was changed thousands of years ago. You were freed. Again, I've heard these arguments last week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is where we do get into race and civil rights, is that there are people that believe that Things need to change to support minorities, and there are people that believe that already too much has been done, and that is Beale and Loki. Yes. And here's the thing that I find really interesting. Do we know what actually happened on Sharon? No. uh, I mean, I don't think we need to know exactly what happened. Well, I think that's what makes it so good is that we can't know. It could be that everything Loki said is true. It could be everything Loki says is is bull. It could be everything Beale says. My gut is that there is truth on both sides. Yes. uh, There's truth on both sides. And as we find out, uh, you know, whatever, whatever that each of their truths are, it, it did not have a, uh, a happy ending. And Loki says, and man, this is his, this is where Loki, who I really don't like starts to sound persuasive. Are we free to be men? Free to be husbands and fathers. Free to live our lives in equality and dignity. That could come right out of any speech in the civil rights movement. For sure. For sure. And then Beale's like, he asked for utopia in a day. It can't be done. Again, this is a classic argument in all of these movements of how much do you push for? Do you push for a compromise that's more likely to get through? Or do you say, no, no, I want everything that isn't going to get through. And then, ha- and I've heard this from, uh, from minority leaders of, I'm tired of people telling me to wait. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of people telling me it's too soon. I'm tired of people telling you, just be satisfied with what you have. That's something I hear all the time. Yep. And I hear the opposite. I hear we've already given you enough. Not in a day and not in 10 times, 10,000 years by your thinking. To you, we are a loathsome breed who will never be ready. Genocide for my people is the plan for your utopia. So I think part one of that line about 10 times 10,000 years, to you, we are a lonesome breed. I think that we will discover is 100% true of Beale, of what he thinks of them. Do you think Beale's solution is, or his utopia is genocide for Loki's people? Uh, at this point, I do, yes. I, I don't think Beale thinks that. 
but I think that that might be what he does. I don't I, think, I, well, you know I what I mean? That, I think that, that Beal does not see a compromise that would put, put both sides on equal footing. As Absolutely. Long as, I agree. As long as Beal's, as Beal's solution to this is where, where his side is the hierarchy and, and Lokai's side is the subordinates and that they accept that. And that's, and that is something that Beal's side or the Lokai side will not accept. So, we said that Loki was less smooth and Beal was smoother. Who's Not starting anymore. to lose it now? Yeah. Who's starting to lose it now? We are starting to see Beal's true colors. The only yep. thing that Beal is really good at in this case is uh, uh, presenting a, a, uh, a, a rational front. But when challenged, when challenged yep. and when the pot is stirred, he is just as irrational as Loki. So there are lines of dialogue that are written, which even an average actor can make sound pretty good. And there are lines of dialogue, which only a great actor can pull off. And I am going to read this line and then I'm going to play what Frank Gorshin does with it. Uh, He says, filthy little plotter of ruin, you vicious subverter of every decent thought. You're coming back to pay for your crimes. That's hard for me to say. Now I'm going to play Frank Gorshin saying it. Filthy little plotter of ruin. You... Vicious subverter of every decent thought. You're coming back to pay for your crimes. He's awesome. And the way the way Frank Gorshin says it is like again. I remember. I, I specifically wrote in my notes at this point. Frank Gorshin is terrific. He is. He's amazing. I know you and all those with whom you are plotting to take power permanently. Loki sees this conspiracy where the government is trying to take power permanently and never get let his people have a chance for power. You know what else I thought about at this moment? What's the that? idea that we're never, because this is sort of the idea, we're never going to get ahead. We're never going to be treated equally. It's never going to be fair. It's always going to be a conspiracy against us. It's like six months before, and we talked about it on this podcast, is the back-to-back assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy. Yep. And you think of the anger that like, if here were these two people that were going to make it happen, that were going to fight for civil rights, and maybe they were finally going to get get somewhere, and those guys get assassinated. Mm-hmm. Do you think that turned some people into kind of reasonable protesters into loci? Do I think it affected some people in that way? Sure. Do I feel like that absolutely that that losing both of these champions, you know, King and Kennedy, uh, made people feel hopeless and desperate and yeah. and uh, angry, and more violent in their like that they 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 turn to to violence as a solution because clearly look what happened to these guys sure absolutely i think that it made them more volatile and that's why i think it's amazing about this episode is we have this guy articulating who's who's fighting for the freedom of his people which we should like but articulating the understandable anger of some percentage of the population at that time yeah Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and again i'm gonna say do we have groups that are really really angry right now oh yeah oh yeah when i return to sharon you will understand what power is i will have armies of followers and i love kirk's response it's not very clear that you know each other extremely well gentlemen he's had to to hold beal Mm -hmm. back okay at least you know even loci didn't need to be held back but look at the range of emotion that Beale had from being yep. calm and rational to like holding up his fist and and getting ready to lunge 
back at, at Loki and, you know, Kirk is, you know, holding him back. I, I just, I think they're, and I think that Shatner's performance in this episode is, is excellent. I agree. The only service this ship can offer is to bring you together. This is not a battlefield. Captain, I led revolutionaries, not criminals. I demand political asylum. This ship is a sanctuary. I like Kirk's response. He goes, for you, the ship is a prison. And the line between a revolutionary and a criminal is all perspective. It's imperative that you return Lokai to Sharon for judgment. Commissioner Sharon is not a member of the Federation. No treaties have ever been signed. Your demand for possession of this prisoner cannot be honored. There are no extradition procedures to allow it. So Kirk is going to follow the law. That's what he's going to do. Yep. And Beale says, and this is where that, that little edge comes in. Captain, I hope you will be sensible. Anytime someone says there, you should be, I hope you'll be sensible is a threat. Well, that's a good point. Yep. Impossible. I have a mission to accomplish. There's a planet to be decontaminated. Millions of lives are at stake. Once that has been completed, I'll return to Starbase 4 and turn you both over to the authorities. You can make your case to them. I'm sorry, Captain. That will not be satisfactory. Not at all satisfactory. You can see that Beale is like fighting hard to stay calm. Yep. And, and Kirk, also calm, is laying down the law. As a visiting dignitary from a far planet, I offer you every hospitality aboard this ship. Choose any other course. You're the captain. Now, does Beale have any intention of letting this ship go to Starbase 4? Not, not one bit. Nope. And I love to that, you know, he says, okay, look, I got quarters for you. And then he turns to Loki and says, and I suggest you get a great deal of rest, especially your vocal cords. It seems you'll have a double opportunity to practice your oratory on Starbase 4. Does Kirk like Loki? Nope, not one bit. Not at all. And he's very happy to let his disdain for him show. I mean, like, would, would Kirk have invited Loki to have a drink with Spock like he does with Beale later in this episode? Well, we're, we're going to come back to that choice because I think that is fascinating. Yeah, it is. Um, and right at this moment, we get a hail from the bridge that the Enterprise is off course. And he says, we'll get the ship back on course, but the, the Enterprise is not responding to controls. So he says, I'll be right there. And he leaves the sick bay. Dr. McCoy enters the frame. And this is a really interesting shot that is underscored by chilling music. McCoy is approaching Loki. And as the camera pans from McCoy to Loki, you just see Loki standing there, frozen with a stare that could kill millions. Wow. And it is underscored by the, this music that makes it so chilling. And I think more than any other scene up to that point, this moment when you see that, that killer frozen stare that Loki has locked himself into, that moment more than anything made me afraid of him. Mm. You know what occurred to me watching at this time, by the way, that I never thought of before? This has got to be the least McCoy we've seen in a long time. He's barely in this episode. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, we're up on the bridge trying to figure out why the ship is out of control. I don't know how many times the Enterprise has been out of control <laughs> lately, but it seems, feels like it's been a lot. And the speed is now up to warp eight. Again, a lot of times that we've had the speed going out of control. We 
put the ship in red alert. By the way, they use this zoom in and out of the red alert light many I times. I hate it. Terrible. Yeah, I, 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 I don't like this. The only time, the only episode where they use that, like, keep zooming in and out on the red alert signal. Now, apparently, Judge Taylor used that effect as a sort of uh, tribute to Frank Gorshin because of his character on Batman, because, you know, they were, he was trying to sure. use that kind of an effect because they would do stuff like that on Batman. But leave it to Batman. Star Trek is Star Trek. You don't have to overstate the obvious with that. Not, not only is it terrible, but it's poorly executed. There's one moment where it's zooming in and out. I think it's in auxiliary control, and the camera starts to pan down in the middle of one of the zooms, which is a total no-no film-wise. It looks really weird. Yeah. And it means that the uh, probably the first AC who is pulling the zoom and the camera operator are not in sync. Yeah, yeah. It you was know. in sick bay. It was in sick bay before Lokai jumps okay. up. Yeah. And we're back on the bridge. We are looking at the heading. Sharon lies between 403 Mark 7 and Mark 9. And in walks Beale. We're on the way to Sharon. And again, Kirk flips his chair around. Like, like, okay, you ask me, does the Beale have any intention on letting the Enterprise go to Starbase 4? And the answer was no. And just at this moment. For 50,000 of your terrestrial years, I have been pursuing Lokai through the galaxy. I have not traveled this far this long only to give him up now. And Beale is like in control. We are seeing his true colors. And Kirk is observing the situation. He is being calm and he is being cool. And then Lokai jumps on the bridge and it's what a scene. And again, we're using these superpowers that I don't really understand, but it's just what the show is. We've also gone up to warp 10. And I think at this point, we pro- why isn't Scotty's people going, you know what? I kind of think the Enterprise can go a lot faster than we ever thought it could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. should probably figure this out. I will not return to Sharon. Captain, you must guarantee me sanctuary. He cannot help you now. You are lost, Lokai. You're on the way to judgment, to final punishment. One thing I was wondering, by the way, um, does Lokai have the same powers as Beale? I think he does, yeah. Yeah, because when they engage closer to the end of the episode, they're, they're, no one is overpowering Whatever. the other. Yeah, which which again, I, this is where the plot stuff doesn't work because if he had these powers, why isn't he taking over the Enterprise? Yeah, mm-hmm. and Lokai now pleads his case. My cause is just. You must help me, all of you must help me. And then Beals responds, "Oh, the old cry, pity me, pity me." Everyone on the bridge is just observing these guys go at each other, and they've been doing this for fifty thousand years. I mean, it's crazy. I think the second part of that line is interesting, too. He says, Everywhere he's gone, he's been helped to escape. On every planet, he has found fools who bleed for him and shed tears for the oppressed one. That, to me, is the benefactors that he betrayed, that he mentioned earlier. Kill him. Kill him! You're two of a kind. And we are both going to Sharon. You cannot change the course of this ship any more than you can change me. That is the theme of the episode. Can Beale and Loki change? Right. And the answer is no, they can't. <laughs> I mean, there's a weird thing that occurs to me with the like the black and white and how that pattern is. There's like my brain goes to can a, you can't make a le- leopard change its spots. Mm-hmm. You know, here's the other thing I thought. I think this episode is a perfect companion piece to Day of the Dove. Because Day of the Dove is the episode where two groups who have perfect reasons to hate each other 
are going to spend the rest of their life battling into eternity and manage to stop. They manage to stop. There is a wisdom there. There is a a, a maturity. There is a, a revelation and epiphany that they had that Beal and Loki are incapable yep. of having. And, yep. you know, can you change your leopard spots? Can you teach an old dog new tricks? Are people capable of change? Yep. Are they? Because like the themes that, that we are talking about here around the time that this episode was filmed, and here we are 55 years later, what's changed? It, and it's getting worse. I mean, are we going to be like the Federation and the Klingons in Day of the Dove? Or are we going to be like Beale and Loki and let that be your last battlefield? You're you're right. This is a this is the flip side, you know, to Day of the Dove. I think we have changed. I think people do change, but I think it's always slower than we want it to be. And there's always three steps forward, two steps back, you know, over and over and over again. And sometimes when you're on that step back, it feels like you went back to the beginning. You know, that's how it feels. You know, I, I think that individually, some people are capable of changing. But I think in most cases, people are incapable of changing. There are some people who are just, they will, they will never change. They are incapable of changing. And I think as a race, as a whole, technological advances aside, I think that humanity as a whole has not done enough to change. I mean, there have been changes, but there are still big conflicts that are, that are, are still being waged because not enough has changed. I a hundred percent agree that not enough has changed. And this is obviously a much bigger conversation. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say, I'll say two things. One is I think that, I think that mostly we change generationally so that the, it, it really is true. It's just what you said is that the odds of one person completely changing their way of looking at a thing, it happens, but it doesn't happen very often, but frequently your kids look at the thing a new way. That, that does happen more often. And certainly things like gay marriage would be a perfect example of things where, no, we really have changed in the way that we think about that. Sure. Um, the other thing, and I would highly recommend uh, anyone who's interested to read two, Steven Pinker's last two books. One is The Better Angels of Our Nature, and I forget the other one. But they're all about how, as much as it feels terrible, the world is so much better than it has ever been. And I and it is very true but it doesn't feel that way. They're, they're definitely books that are worth checking out. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Kirk is done. He calls security to grab these guys and they go to grab these guys and run into some kind of shields. <laughs> Says phasers on stun. They fire. The phasers hit the shields. Fire. Your phasers are ineffective against our shields. You are helpless, Captain. Kirk is not that helpless. Because he has one rabbit he is about to pull out of his hat. And this is the rabbit that ties Let That Be Your Last Battlefield to the very first episode that was shot for Star Trek when it went to series. And that is the Corbomite Maneuver. Um, so he, I think it is definitely similar, except the Corbomite Maneuver is a bluff. Well, so is this. It is? So he's... Well, well, it's not okay. This is not a bluff. Okay, wait, wait, hang on. The okay. ship's gonna blow up. All right, hang on a minute. Okay, the Corbomite maneuver was a bluff because the Corbomite maneuver didn't exist. Right. This is a gamble. This yes. is a risk. Absolutely. This is more of a risk because 
Kirk is not pulling the Corbomite maneuver. He's going a step further with it yeah. and actually threatening to destroy the Enterprise as the only one who can threaten to destroy the Enterprise. And he says to Beale, I am captain of the ship, and it will follow whatever course I set for it, or I will order its destruction. You're bluffing. And I love Kirk's response, Shatner's performance at this moment when he looks at Beale, moves toward him closely, and every step of the way says, I will destroy it. It is so convincing and so immersive how much control Kirk has at a moment when Beale thinks he has control of the ship. I couldn't agree more. I think this sequence is fantastic. I think it's beautifully directed. Yep. I love everything that they do in it. I just want to point out, I, I've seen some people say like, you know, oh, Kirk was just mad that that he didn't have control of his Enterprise anymore. It's like, no, there are a billion lives at stake. That's why Kirk's doing this. It's not that you took control of my ship. I mean, obviously that's a problem and he would fight back against that as he's done in many, many episodes. It's that there are literally a billion people going to die. And the thing that I want to bring up is, which I don't think we consider very often, is what is the crime that Starfleet wants Loki for? Okay, the, 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 the crime that Starfleet wants Loki for by this point is because he stole a shuttlecraft. Right. Now, now, to me, at this point in the episode, like still holding Loki accountable for stealing a shuttlecraft seems so trivial to me. Well, and what is Beale doing right now? He's stealing the Enterprise. He's stealing the Enterprise, and he's putting a billion people's lives at risk. The, the comparison between the criminality that we know of, of Loki, and the criminality of Beale, there's no comparison whatsoever. Good agree. And again, I'm going to hold off, but we're going to get to having a nice glass of wine with Beale in a little while. Yeah, yeah. Computer, this is Captain James Kirk of the USS Enterprise. I love the codes they figured out. I love the way Shatner says them. Mm -hmm. I love the camera work that we go into these eye and mouth close-ups. It's like gunslinger stuff. Destruct sequence one, code one, one A. And the camera zooms to the computer and a one pops up. Voice and code one, one A, verified and correct. And then we go to Spock. And again, it's in his eyes, that extreme close-up of his eyes to his mouth. Destruct sequence number two, code one, one A, two B. Voice and code verified and correct. And then you hear Kirk say, Mr. Scott, and it just looks at his eyes shift. You don't even see the, his full face when he says, Mr. Yep. Scott. Destruct sequence number three. Code one, B, two, B, three. Verified and correct. Destruct sequence completed and engaged. And the other thing that's happening, and again, it's why reaction shots are so important. We're seeing Beale react. We're seeing Loki react. And we're seeing Uhura and Chekhov and Sulu all react to this really, really scary moment. Okay, now here's the thing. So the way that Sulu and Chekhov and Uhura are reacting, they're nervous, they're starting to sweat. Yeah. Uh, what I'm surprised is that Scotty is not the one who's like reacting the most to this because of the it's threatening. To, yeah, this is yeah. his baby. But 
you can that that's a testament just how much he believes in what Kirk is doing. And of course, Spock is, you know, not going to express emotion at this point. But what I love about it again is Kirk's confidence. He's like rubbing his chin, you know, he's just like he's being so calculating with how this is going to play out. He's being very calm through this whole process. And Lokai and Beale are both sweating and you can really see it through the makeup. Well, that's something I actually wanted to bring up is so if you don't know, movie sets are really hot. Yeah. You got these bright, heavy lights shining at you. Actors are working hard. All actors sweat on the set and you have a makeup person standing by to powder them down to take the glisten of sweat off. If you make the makeup pure, shiny black, this problem is so much worse. Yeah. Because, and also, I'm guessing you the powder you use is kind of a light color. You can't powder down that black, black makeup right. and have it work. So there are lots of times that it's a little too shiny or slightly smudged. It, it was just hard to do. Yeah. Awaiting final code for 30-second countdown. Again, we have those hard looks, and Kirk says, As the ship returned to the course set for it by my orders, Negative, Captain. We are still headed directly for Sharon. Then the computer is waiting for that last code, and Kirk says, Begin 30-second countdown. Code 000. Destruct 0. This exact code will be used again in Star Trek Three, when the very sparsely manned Enterprise that was stolen, stolen by Captain Kirk, to or Admiral Kirk, to save Spock. Only in Star Trek Three, the Enterprise is destroyed. In this case, not. We're gonna, so you have asked me many, many times if I remember the first time I saw whatever. And, and from these original shows, the answer is no. Yeah. I 100% remember sitting in the movie theater and hearing them give these destruct codes and going, oh, it's really that be the last battlefield. These yeah, are the yeah. right codes. They're uh, all like, I can completely remember that. Sure. Yeah. I do too. Oh yeah. yeah. I remember on June 1st, 1984 when, when I, I didn't remember this. the date. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I saw this for the first time, I went, wow, they're reusing the exact code they used and let that be your last battlefield. That was awesome. Super awesome. 30 seconds. 29. 28. 27. And that is the end of Act 2. And then we come back into Act 3, and the countdown is still going. Everyone is frozen uh, on the bridge. From 5 to 0, no command in the universe can prevent the computer from fulfilling its destruct orders. Now, I don't know why you would build that into a computer system, but it's certainly dramatic. 15 seconds. You can use your will to drag this ship to Cheryl. But I command the computer. Mine is the final command. Again, Shatner is awesome. He's awesome. This is the Kirk that we saw in the Corbomite maneuver, where he was extremely cool when he was pulling the bluff. And now it's not a bluff, it's a threat. Yeah. And he's going to do it. And he's he's not nervous about it. He's like unless you give me control of my ship back to me, you know, then we 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 stop right here. And so the countdown gets, you know, from 7 uh, 8 7 6 and then you hear Bill scream. Angry! Computer. 
is Captain James Kirk of the USS Enterprise. Code 123, continuity. Abort destruct order. So in our last episode, I made kind of a big deal in that which survives about how inconsistent they were about the time and how many seconds and minutes had passed. So I felt honor bound that I had to time this one, too. And of course, it's not exactly 30 seconds. I wouldn't expect it to be exactly 30 seconds. It is, in fact, 40 seconds, but which a is pretty close and b. The most important thing is not, of course, that they get the seconds exactly right. That's almost impossible. The important thing is the tension. And the difference between the countdown in that which survives and how you feel about time and this countdown is night and day. Absolutely. The tension in this is is palpable and uh, worthy of like, you know, doomsday yep. machine. Yep. And we hear destruct order aborted and the relief goes around the room. And Kirk asks the same question. Mr. Spock, is this ship headed for Ariana's? Negative, Captain. The Enterprise is now moving in a circular course. And I like Scotty's response. And a warp tam, we're going nowhere mighty fast. <laughs> I warned you of his treachery. Kill him! And again, this is like, look, the Federation, that's not what, they're not going to kill him. And right. Lokai's whole sense of values are different. We're waiting for you to fulfill your commitment, Commissioner. And then Beale, he's back to being suave and polite and says, Captain, I am happy to have you complete your mission of mercy to the planet Arianus. It was madness to interfere with such a worthwhile endeavor. Do you think Kirk buys this contrition at this moment? No, he shouldn't. Yeah. I don't think he does, but he does kind of flip to being very generous with giving yeah. Beale and Loki freedom to roam around yeah. the ship. And Beale does give the Enterprise back control. We're now heading to, for Arianus. Let me reaffirm my position, gentlemen. I could put you in the brig for what you've done, but I won't do it. And I'm going, no, you should put them in the brig. Especially after such a display where he was literally one second away from losing the ability to stop the computer from destroying the Enterprise. You were so close to that moment. And now you're going to give these guys free run of the Enterprise? Guys who um, obviously have superpowers. Right. And I keep thinking, I go back to the alternative factor when Kirk gave Lazarus yeah. free run of the Enterprise. And what does he do in 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 the return? He he uh blows up a computer and steals that dilithium crystals. Yeah. So so Kirk is just Look at look at the kids and the, and the children shall lead. I mean, he's just a little too generous. And I I get that, you know, you, you you know, you want to see Kirk be diplomatic and understanding and empathetic. But in this case, I agree with you, Steve. They put those guys in a break and just be done with it. I'm glad you brought this up because I've had this thought. I haven't in doing our rewatch. This thought has occurred to me multiple times. I never thought of a moment to bring it up. But only this time am I going, man, Kirk really is maybe a little too nice at the end of a lot of these episodes. Khan, who tried to take over the ship and kill him, he said, well, yeah, go off and take take over this whole planet. Yep. You know, <laughs> uh, by any other name, you, you crushed, a, you know, a crew member into like dust. Yeah, but here we found a nice planet. Let's be friends. Like this happens a lot where I'm kind of like, look, I like forgiveness and justice and finding ways to work things out, too. But maybe some maybe maybe you need a little bit more punishment. Here. Well, well, listen, there there is a there is an aspect of Kirk's character in which he is he is able to express empathy and compassion and this yeah. is something that you and I have talked about many many times yes that that after turning the enterprise into a hell ship he appeals to the Thasians 
to yep. let Charlie stay with with him uh, after destroying the colony on Cestus Three, chasing the Gorn and battling the Dorn and and practically killing him, you know, and stopping just short of actually thrusting the stake into his heart, saying, "No, I won't kill you." This is a great quality of Kirk's character, and it is also a flaw in his character because it's great that he is able to show compassion after being in such dire straits. But at the same time, there's there's something about him that just he's not able to see when to do it and when not to do it. I, I, I'm actually really glad we're talking about this because thematically this is this actually is a big thing and what I've been thinking about personally a lot is that there have been times and even times recently you know what? We talked about this at the very beginning of this podcast. We talked about this idea that sometimes you reach out to someone and you try to do the Kirk move of be compassionate. We talked about it on Corbinite Maneuver. That's when we talked about it. And that sometimes you do that and you hope they'll respond in kind. And sometimes they just kick the shit out of you. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And you and I know you and I both had this experience. And that is clearly, you know, space seed to Wrath of Khan. That is what happened. He was compassionate to this guy, and this guy came back to try to kill him. You know, and, that's a really good point, you know, making it relatable on that level where, you know, you're seeing Kirk uh, go through the ringer and still show compassion in a way that it is uh, productive and aspirational. Yep. And then there are moments where, you know, you see him show empathy and extend the olive branch and try to be compassionate, and it comes back to bite him. Like it does here, like it did in, uh, well, I mean, the alternative factor, not that that's a great episode, but it is something that I have aspired to, to show compassion and, and, and empathy and try to show forgiveness only to realize that those, it falls on deaf ears sometimes and that there are certain people you just can't reason with. Well, and here's the thought I'm literally having at this moment, and it's helping me to reconcile myself to something which is that because i because part of me goes like well maybe I, I shouldn't have been so compassionate and then i wouldn't have gotten hurt so bad if i hadn't you know reached out with that olive branch and the thought i'm having today is i would rather be compassionate and occasionally get the shit kicked out of me than give up on compassion I, I, I feel, feel the same way i feel the same way i am trying to reconcile a situation myself where i feel like i had been wronged in a big way. And I have tried to uh, show compassion and empathy. And it is still a, a, a situation that was extremely hurtful to me. But I don't want that to change who I am. Yeah. That being said, there is a time where you show compassion and someone, you know, turns on you and attacks that, you know, Kirk's not afraid of throwing down either. There are some times where it's like, okay, yeah, I gave I gave you a couple olive branches. You're not taking them. You're trying to hurt me. I'm going to fight back. Right. You exactly. Um, I love this moment, by the way, as he talks about the Federation and its belief in laws and not using force. He says, "You are free to move about the ship. I hope that you'll take the opportunity to know more about the Federation through its best representatives, my crew, my, my crew. crew. Mm -hmm. I love that." And there's, a, by the way, a great shot of Beale and Loki listening to this. And I think we, the audience, knows this isn't going to work. Like, Absolutely. This you know, we're, we're only at the beginning of Act 3. Like, there's going to be some more problems. You speak very well, Captain. Your 
words promise justice for all. That's right, sir. Yes, well, I have learned to wait for actions. After Arianus, what is justice? I shall wait to see it dispensed. So they both exit the bridge, and Spock just... Two irrevocably hostile humanoids. Disgusting is what I call them. And we have a typical Spock line of, you know, this description is not scientifically accurate. And it's like, you know, of course not. Disgust is not a scientific term. And Scotty, I totally agree with, who says... Mr. Spock, the word disgusting describes exactly what I feel about those two. And I love Kirk just like shuts him down. It's enough, you two. These guys are getting to you. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to say one more thing about Loki's last line about justice, and I'll see if it's dispensed, is... We know that Loki was on trial on Sharon 50,000 years ago. Was it a fair trial? That's a great question. Uh, and of course, we can't know the answer. It's hard to know. Uh, I mean, the, the, the fact that he's been on the run for the last 50,000 year, years, he doesn't think it was a fair trial. Uh, if Beale was the judge, I don't think it would have been a fair trial. Right. Um, and again, you know, I talked about the Chicago seven is at the trial of the Chicago seven. This hadn't happened yet when this episode is filmed. Bobby seal continually asked for his own lawyer and the judge continually refused. And because Bobby seal wouldn't shut up, he bound and gagged him for the rest of the trial. Wow. Wow. I mean, so that might've been what happened to Loki. And if that's what happened to Loki, then I am absolutely understand why he's untrusting of a justice system. Right. We cut to a fascinating scene, which is we're in the rec room and we see through the door. We don't go into the room. We're looking through the door and we see Sulu and some other crew members and we're going to hear Chekhov's voice, although I don't think we actually see him. Yeah, he's not. In, he's, it's a weird edit because he's not in the room with Sulu and the other crew members, but we hear Chekhov's voice. And Lokai is basically speechifying. And I know from my actions, you must all think me a volcanic hothead. Erupting lava from my nostrils at danger signals that are only figments of my imagination. And the camera pulls back, and we see Spock in a very empty corridor, which is most of this episode. Yeah, exactly. Walking by, and he hears it, and he walks over and listens. I act the madman out of the anger and frustration he forces upon me, and thereby prove his point that I am a madman. What do you think about this scene? Well, this is the first time we have seen Loki act rationally. Yep, And he is trying to now gain followers to side with him on the Enterprise. What I think is really interesting is that his potential followers are the young people on the ship. Oh, I see. They're the low rank people on the ship. This is what I think some people would call indoctrination. And certainly in the late 60s and certainly today, where were these movements started? Frequently at universities where people were young people were taught different ways of looking at the world. And there were a lot of people that would call that indoctrination. And today um, there are certainly conversations about trying to force certain worldviews on young people and what effect that might have. And here we have the officer, the older guy eavesdropping on the young people being spoken to by a radical revolutionary. Okay, that's this is actually even though we're late into the run of the third season, this is not even the last time that we're going to see a situation like this mm. because we are going to see oh. an indoctrination in the way to Eden coming yeah. from a different uh, you know, point of view completely. Yeah. Yeah, a much a much worse much much worse episode. Therein lies my lack of ability to alert you and your captain to the real threat of someone like Beale. See? 
you are from the planet Earth. There is no persecution on your planet. Wow. How do you know that? I mean, he obviously has didn't look at the, uh, the the computer records or else he would have known that, wow, there is a lot of persecution on their planet. Well, and I think this is in a weird way, like we had the moment with Alexander in Plato's Stepchildren. I think this is another moment where we articulated in a much, much stronger way how things have evolved in mm. the Federation. Right. There was persecution on Earth once. I remember reading about it in my history class. Yes, but it happened way back in the 20th century. There's no such primitive thinking today. Those two lines is part of where I think Star Trek goes wrong in early episodes of Next Generation. It's one thing to say we have evolved and improved and it's another thing to say we're perfect right and there's so many wesley speeches that sound like that oh that I, that was some weird stuff that I, we don't do that today mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. no people are people you know there's still going to be conflicts and prejudices and things that's still going to happen well i think that's that goes back to one of the biggest misunderstandings about star trek at least at least the original series in the next generation is that star trek was never about the perfection of humanity it was about the striving right. for the perfection of humanity. If if it took all of human history for us to get to this point in the early 21st century, like, are we really supposed to believe that in 200 years, when we get to the 23rd century, that everything is going to be perfect? It's not going to be. We're still going to be striving for perfection. We're, we're going to be better, hopefully, in a lot of ways but we're never going to be perfect. We're always going to be dealing with internal conflict. We're, we're going to always be dealing with overcoming uh, like prejudice and, 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 you know, uh, hopefully we'll be more, more informed to come to those conclusions ourselves, but we're never going to be perfect, no. but hopefully we'll be, we'll be better off than we are now. Exactly. Which, as I said, based on that Steven Pinker book, Today, we're better off as, than we are now. And I fully believe in a few hundred years, we're going to be even better off, assuming, so. we, assuming we survive. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. Why is it important that we're watching this from Spock's perspective? Like, they're not just showing the scene. They're showing that Spock is eavesdropping. He's literally spying on this scene. Right. I, I always looked at that scene as Spock being observant that Lokai is trying to gain, is now trying to gain gain followers on the enterprise and he is just being aware and informed of like, you know, we got to watch out for this guy. Um, I a hundred percent agree. And I think it's just so interesting that Spock, the establishment is spying on the younger people in this political conversation at a time when the FBI is putting in spies into the black Panthers. And, you know, the, like there's the movie black Klansman, you know, where the guy is actually spying on his own people, you know, in terms of these movements, this is exactly things that were going on at this time. Well, let, let me ask you a question. It's a, it, it, it is, it's a really fair to look at Spock as the establishment because he's just observing. Like, I think he's being, he's, right to be informed that he's okay clearly this guy has issues with Beale and issues with his with his past on Sharon and if you take his words at face value there is definitely an army that he had on Sharon and now he is taking his plight to the the enterprise and he's hearing and seeing Lokai in a way that he has not yet seen him as he is seeing a completely different side of Lokai, and I think he's right to be suspicious of Lokai's intentions during the scene. 
I so here's what I think, and I'll respond to it in a weird way. So first of all, do I think we can call Spock the establishment? Absolutely, he's the first officer of the episode of the Enterprise. He's the second most powerful person here. Totally, he's establishment. What I think is interesting is that what you just highlighted was an exact conflict that we have all the time. How do we balance individual rights and privacies with the needs of the state? And you know, it's like literally there's arguments about whether or not the government should be able to unlock your iPhone. There's arguments and they go like, look, we, if they're terrorists or child traffickers or some horrible thing, don't you think we should have the right to go check that out? And it's like, well, yeah, it kind of makes sense. And you go, well, what about our privacy? What about, I mean, these are literally the arguments that are happening all the time. And we hear again, you hear them on both sides. And so how much does the state, how much do authorities get to check you out? You know? Okay. I, I completely understand that. But at the same time, Spock is first of all the door is the door is open you know sure. it's not a locked door he's not bugging them the door nope. is open okay yep. and Spock is just listening he's not taking any kind of action he's not going back to Captain Kirk and saying nope. hey you know keep an eye on this guy he's being Spock he's observing he's totally. he's doing his job <laughs> I'm not saying he's wrong that's this is why I love this episode is that is that this conversation is exactly why this episode is subtle. I agree. You know, you know what I mean? This conversation yep. is like, well, why is Spock there? And is that okay? And what does that symbolize in our world? And then Loki, in a really impassioned way, says, How can I make your flesh know how it feels to see all those who are like them? And only because they are like despised, slaughtered, and even worse, denied the simplest bit of decency that is a living being's right. I know I'm I'm going line by line through some of this stuff, but there are so many times I've heard people from minorities, women, people who are gay, being in case saying, I can't explain to you what my experience is like. If only you could see what it feels like. And there's, you know, words that are thrown around like privilege and things like that, which I know people have strong reactions to. But the idea that there is a group of people that are experiencing reality in a way that another group of people can't understand at all. And that is what Loki is saying to members of the Federation. It's like, you can't know what this is like. If I could make you feel it, you would be on my team. Right. You know, mm -hmm. do you know what it would be like to be dragged out of your hovel into a war on another planet, a battle that will serve your oppressor and bring death to you and your brothers. Wow. We just got to Vietnam. Yep. Yep. Um, and you know, so first of all, in the Vietnam draft, African-Americans were twice as likely to be drafted mm -hmm. because way more white people were able to take advantage of college deferments and other deferments. And so there was a, you know, the huge rate of um, minorities fighting in wars overseas. And one year before this episode was made, Muhammad Ali refused the draft because he would said he wouldn't. No one in Vietnam called him the N word. Like, it, again, is this an episode about Vietnam? Not at all. But it manages to connect it to that in just one line. Yep, absolutely. In just one line. I mean, this episode has a lot on its mind. It's got a lot going on. And then we cut from the young people, the, the lower officers being talked to by Loki to that glass of wine being poured for Beale. And this just emphasizes your point because we had, we had Loki – talking to the younger crew members, yep. the younger members of the establishment. And now you have Beale sitting there with the establishment. And yep. Beale sees himself as the establishment. And here's a guy who tried to steal the Enterprise and 
came very close to losing his life and the life of everybody aboard. And now they're having a glass of wine with him and killing a billion people. I think we can't put that. This guy was literally seconds away from being responsible for the death of a billion people on our works and we're pouring him a glass of wine. Yep. And and again, I'm going to say there are lots of times where for some reason, really powerful or really rich people don't take the same consequences for their actions that not powerful, poor people take. And that is what we're seeing in this scene. Putting the matter into the hands of your Starfleet command is, of course, the proper procedure. How long will it be before we hear from them, Captain? By the way, what room is this? I thought it was Kirk's quarters, but it's not. Oh, is it Kirk's quarters? Oh, maybe it is. Because it, it just seems like a weird. Yeah, room. yeah. It's yeah. not. It's not. It's not the rec room. It's not. Yeah. The, yeah. It's not the briefing room. Right. I expect the answer is already on its way. Well, then let us drink to their wise solution to our problem. That's true. He's assuming that the Federation will side with him. Well, I think he's – I'm going to play nice assuming that until they don't. Right. And then okay. I'm not going to play nice. Commissioner, Starfleet Command may not arrive at the solution you anticipate. There is the matter of the shuttlecraft, which Loki appropriated. Gentlemen, we are discussing a question of degree. Surely stealing a shuttlecraft uh, cannot be equated with the importance of murdering thousands of people. We obviously can't know whether Loki is responsible for the death of thousands of people. Right. Of course not. And, and Kirk even says that. Well, we don't know that he did that. Yeah. All we know is that he stole a shuttlecraft. My gut, and this is what we said before, is that there is truth there. Probably not the whole truth. But Loki probably is responsible for people's deaths. Now, now let me ask you also, like, like, here, like you, you had the scene where Loki is is talking to Sulu and obviously Chekhov and other junior officers, and now you have the scene with Beal where he is with the senior officers, Kirk and Spock. Do you think it was intentional on the part of Oliver Crawford and Gene Kuhn, depending on how far the scene goes back into the early outlines? to show the sort of dynamic that the episode is trying to outline showing loci appeal to the younger people and showing Beale, you know, sort of in, in cahoots with the establishment or, you know, like, especially because of the way that we saw at least initially how sort of rational Beale was in the beginning and how we liked Beale in the beginning yeah. And how we didn't like Loki at all, and that it isn't until the scene in the in with Loki talking to the other officers that we kind of go, oh, okay, you know, that's the, where was that guy? You know, I mean, it's just like there's. You're right. There is a lot about this episode that is definitely subtle, and these are things I never thought about before. This is why I really wish we had. Gene Kuhn and what's the director's name? Uh, uh, the director is Judd Taylor and Judd Taylor. Yeah. And the other, and the other writer, I wish we could ask him because it could be that I'm in just kind of making mountains out of molehills here because so many of these lines are sticking out to me yeah. and they weren't intentional. It could be, they just, you know, like, Oh, well, Kirk and Spock are talking to him. Sure. Let's have him share a glass of wine, whatever. Mm, yeah. And weren't thinking of the, the image of the powerful people drinking wine with this guy and what that means. Maybe it's accidental. It, this episode was written really fast, obviously, with lots yep. of re- rewrites at the last minute. I don't know how it came about, but that's what I'm getting. And, and it's funny. There's an aspect I think we mentioned before about Star Trek. One of the things the original series that makes it great is that in some ways they're parables. 
you know, and with a parable like the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden or Cain and Abel is they're simple stories that you can analyze every word and detail and explore them. And that's how I feel about this episode. The, the basic thrust is pretty simple. But all the little details, I go, wait, this maybe this means something. And maybe I'm building it up too much. I don't know. Then we hear from Lieutenant O'Hara that we have an answer from Starfleet. And I think that Kirk is really dumb here because he says, well, just read it and so that Beale can hear it right away. And I'm like, no, you should have taken that privately right. and then decided how to deal with it because they are not doing what Beale wants. Uh, one thing they say, by the way, is that intergalactic treaty clearly specifies that no being can extradi be extradited without due process. It's like intergalactic. They haven't met with any other galaxies. It right, should be yeah. interplanetary or something like that. They, I mean, they were on their way to Andromeda, but they, they, they never got there. And Beale, man, the direction that he goes, and Frank Gorshin is so good at it, because he says... As always, Lokai has managed to gain allies. You know, it's Kirk's like, wait a minute. <laughs> He's doing basically what Lokai did earlier. He said, oh, yeah, sure, you're siding with Beale. I knew, I knew I couldn't trust you. And now Beale's doing the same thing. Yep. Yes, he will evade, delay, and escape again. And in the process, put thousands of innocent beings at each other's throats, getting them to kill and maim for a cause which they have no stake in, but which he will force them to violently espouse by twisting their minds with his lies, his loathsome accusations, and his foul threats. Wow. So, so Beale is being manipulative, and he is being condescending. Yep. Yep. Well, and he's also saying that you are a dupe. And again, I hear this today. There's the phrase social justice warrior that is thrown around at people that I think Beale's speech would fit perfectly with mm. is the idea that you have been duped by people who claim to be victims and that you in the long run will be the victim of that. Again, I'm not saying I agree with this point. I'm merely saying that it is a thing I see in the world today. I, I got gotcha. you. I can assure you, Commissioner, that uh, our minds will not be twisted, not by loci, nor by you. I, again, I will say, up until this point, we've really never said that this is specifically about race. We know there are two groups of people, but we haven't said it's about race. Until this moment where he says, It is obvious to the most simple-minded that loci is of an inferior breed. And that, you know, Kirk and Spock are kind of confused, like, what are you talking about? Uh, yeah. Bill goes, look at me. Well, look at me. Black on one side and white on the other. I am black on the right side. I fail to see the significant difference. Loki is white on the right side. All of his people are white on the right side. And again, they look at each other and like, are like, so what? <laughs> and so like, this is the unsubtle part of the episode, I think. This is the thing that, this is what everyone remembers. And I think this message is fantastic. Uh, because it's not just saying racism is wrong. It's saying racism is stupid. Exactly what it is. Because, I mean, they're just kind of like, what's the big deal? So what? Yeah. And that's that's it right there. So what? Well, and, and I'll say something. And again, it's not the forum to go into this in detail. But I strongly believe, and basically all of science strongly will state, there's no such thing as race. Mm -hmm. race as we perceive it as a social construct. And I'm not saying it's not a really powerful social construct. And I'm not saying that there isn't racism in the world. And I'm not saying that people can't be really proud of their race and have a racial identity. And all of that is true. But in terms of genetics, 
the, the we, we've picked a couple of minor arbitrary differences that are very nonspecific and said, you are that. And that is not true. We are humans. The things that, that separate us are far, far fewer than the things that unite us. Race, racism is stupid. And and listen, that this goes beyond this this goes beyond race of a of a you know a for lack of a better term, black and white nature. If you look at the rise of the fascism, Nazis, the Third Reich, yeah. you know, they looked at the Jews as being an inferior race. Yep. Because, you know, they were looking to execute their final solution. But that applies to that as well. Yeah. There, there's a thing I've been trying to figure out a way to say this and uh, is that what what I think is is that I actually don't think that people hate each other because of the color of their skin. I don't think people hated you and I are both Jewish. I don't think people hated our people because they're Jewish, because largely, you know, the Nazis didn't know anything about Judaism. They didn't know about the rituals. They didn't know about the Talmud. They didn't know about the culture, the discussion. What they hated and what Beale hates is the story that lives in his own mind about what that thing means. Well, well, growing up, I can speak firsthand that I was hated because I was Jewish and people didn't need to know anything about Jews nope. just to just to know that, oh, well, he's Jewish, so I'm going to hate him. So I was definitely on the receiving end of that growing up in Philadelphia. I, I, I got very little of it growing up in the Bay Area, but I did when I was teaching. Uh, when I was teaching, I largely taught to international students. So it would be a large percentage of Chinese students, South American students, and a fair number of students from the Middle East. And inevitably, at some point in the class, it would come up that I'm Jewish. And I would see the reaction among the people from the Middle East, particularly young men, of just like, oh, what? And I had this one student who I had a lot of interaction with, and we had a private meeting. And he basically said, I don't understand it. You're my favorite teacher, but you're Jewish. How can that be? Did that and, conversation actually happen? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jeez. Wow. And, and, and I said, well, what does being Jewish mean? Like, what do you think that when you hear Jewish, what it means? And he essentially quoted from, you know, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which I don't know if many people know about. But it's basically if you hear the giant conspiracy of bankers or intelligentsia, that's all from this completely fake book that claimed to be a bunch of Jews. And that was what he that was literally taught in his textbooks in schools. He was taught to hate people that were Jewish, wow. but without anything that was true. And so I had meeting after meeting with him, talking mostly about filmmaking, but also talking about Judaism and just be like, no, no, this is what this is what Judaism means for me. This is what it means growing up. I mean, we frequently hate people for things that are complete. We don't understand at all. Exactly. You know, right. So Spock then says he try, he's trying to convince Beale, basically, let me convince you that racism is dumb. And he says, Perhaps the experience of my own planet Vulcan may set an example of some value to you. Vulcan was in danger of being destroyed by the same conditions and characteristics which threatened to destroy Sharon. Watch Frank Gorshin oh, he's, as he listens he's like, to this. He's roll, like rolling his eyes practically at this. It's this like I'm trying to patiently listen and or pretend or appear as if I'm patiently listening and I'm angry and frustrated. That's uh, great. Only the discipline of logic saved my planet from extinction. A thought occurred to me here that's never occurred to me before is I went, was it the churn to logic or was it that the people who had become the Romulans left? That's a great point. I mean, we know about this because we heard about it from Spock himself in Balance mm -hmm. of Terror. We heard that that the Romulans were an offshoot of the Vulcans. So my 
interpretation of that is that when the Vulcans decided to embrace logic moving forward, there were some Romulans who said, no way, I'm out of here. Yeah, we're out. Yeah, right. And I wonder if they hadn't left, (laughs) would they have, you know, would have worked because they might have not turned to logic and then we, you know. Well, they uh, might might be in a situation now that Beale and Loki are in. Let Loki state his grievances. Hear him. Listen to him. Maybe he can change. Maybe he wants they to change. change. Again, we're this idea of change. Same thing he said earlier. You can't, you can't change. You know, you can't change that any more than you can change me. But then Kirk is saying to to Beale, maybe Loki can change. Yep. You know, how come Kirk isn't saying maybe you need to change as well? It's a good point. Change is the essential process of all existence. For instance, the people of Sharon must have once been monocolored. Boy, does Beale not like that idea. Mm-hmm. You mean like people like you? <laughs> yeah. So he's not only racist against uh, people with whichever side that Loki has, but monocolored people too. I once heard that on some of your planets, people believe they are descended from apes. The way he says that, people are descended from apes. Yeah. And then he shoots it. a look back to Kirk. Like, why, why did he say that? So one of the, one of the, we get into like some real racist theory stuff, but one of the big objections to the theory of evolution is the idea that black people and white people have a common ancestor. And in fact, there's, you know, any mention of apes or monkeys, we get into some extremely offensive stuff. And that is because those were words used to describe black people. Mm. And so when he's saying that we're touching on evolution, we're touching on racial epithets, we're touching on stereotypes. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. But it was extremely condescending. And he as he is trailing off with the S's on the word apes, he shoots a look back to Kirk. But we're at Arianus. And then we have, again, a fairly long sequence of them decontaminating the planet. And we finished doing that. It all went perfectly well. Hello, Mr. Chekhov. I don't rightly know, Mr. Spock. I was trying to program for Starbase 4 as ordered. I can't get a response. It just seemed to go dead, sir. And I love the way the shot is framed because Beale is in the background the whole time. Yep. And so we know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Captain, some of the memory banks of the computer are burned out. Can you determine which one? The directional control and the self-destruct, Captain, are both burnt out. I did it like this. He takes his hands and he just puts them over the uh, the console. And it's like being electrified. And you just yeah. see the camera zoom from, you know, pan across from Kirk to Spock to Uhura to Chekhov as they just watch helplessly as they lose control of the Enterprise. And that brings us to the end of Act 3. These are great act breaks. Yep. Two, two and three act breaks in particular oh, are really yeah. good. Two especially. Um and then we hear in the log Kirk say, "In a deliberate act of sabotage." <laughs> yeah. But there's a you can find it on YouTube. Apparently, a lot of people think it's funny how Shatner says sabotage. <laughs> how can we go to Sharon without any more discussion? <laughs> At the moment, I seem to have no choice. And that's all Loki needed. He said, "Okay, let's see what happens after Ariana. See how your justice works." And now this is proven to Loki that the Federation doesn't really believe in justice. If you are partisans of justice, prove it. Kill him. We are not killers. I do love the sort of bewildered nature of our crew of like, what are you talking about? Why would we do that? Right. What do you do? Carry justice on your tongues? You will beg for it, but you won't fight or die for it. And Kirk says, and I think this is very 
it, this is another interesting point. After so many years of leading the fight, you seem very much alive. I doubt that the same can be said for many of his followers. It's a very interesting thing of, oh, the leaders of the rebellion, they're not in the front lines. Right, right. It's, it's the followers who wind up suffering. Yep. And then Beale goes off. You're finished, Lokai. Oh, we've got your kind penned in on Sharon into little districts, and it's not going to change. These are the true racist colors. Penned in in little districts? You've combed the galaxy and come up with nothing but monocolored trash, dual girders, and bleeding hearts. You're dead, you half white. Uh, maybe it is genocide, you know? All right. Maybe that is what Beale is sure. all about. I'll take you with me, you half white. And they attack each other and glow. And they're they're giving off an energy, which if they don't stop, it's going to burn up the bridge. And it just occurred to me, hearing this dialogue and hearing your commentary on it, you know, this episode was filmed, let's see, uh, uh, through uh, uh, October of 1968. So it's about six months after the release of Planet of the Apes. Oh, yeah. Which sure. is another, well, I mean, talk about a masterpiece movie. Um, which I'm sure you did on the cinephiles. Uh, it is. We did. It's like our fourth or fifth movie we ever did. So I would love to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Because well, back then our episodes were like an hour long. Well, I would love to join you for that because that's one of my all time favorite movies. But yeah, me too. Uh, it is, uh, it, you know, this was the time and it still is, unfortunately. And first, Kirk appeals to Beale. Beale, you keep this up and you'll never get to Sharon with your prisoner. The bridge of the ship will be irreparably damaged. This will be your final battlefield. And then he appeals to Lokai. You'll inspire no more disciples. Your cause will be ended. You know, so Kirk, the, the master of the inspiring speech that changes everything, the one who said, we can admit that we're killers, but we're not going to yeah. kill today, whose words resonate. Usually, it's not happening here. Will you return the Enterprise to my control? Beal says... Why not? I don't understand this at all. This is like, makes like, why is Beale? He just took over the Enterprise. Why would he at this moment return it to Kirk's control? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's just we had to get to the end of the episode, and we didn't really know how to do it. Yeah, why not? <laughs> um, and we get we get back control. There's a horrible line where Sulu says, "Controls operating, Captain. The Enterprise is responding as always, Captain. It's beautiful." And you can tell just by the the sonic. Yeah, it's level. ADR. It's yeah. ADR. It was added in later. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why add in a bad line? Yeah. Like it's what, a, it, it, yeah. These are the these are the season three elements of this episode yeah. that I love. And we have arrived at Sharon and we're scanning it. And we hear this description. Several very large cities, uninhabited, extensive traffic systems, barren of traffic. Lower animals and vegetation encroaching on the cities. No sapient life forms registering at all, Captain. Now, in the version of this episode that with the with the newer visual effects that were mm. done back in 2007, when they are approaching Sharon, you can see from space the dark side of the planet is illuminated, not with mm. lights, but with fires. Mm. fires that are still raging on the planet that's a nice it's a nice touch that was a good touch and then here's the big line there is no evidence of natural disaster yet there are vast numbers of unburied corpses in all cities all the people are dead all dead captain they have annihilated each other totally 
And what's so interesting is in a weird way at this moment, as you see Beale and Loki take it in, and they are obviously destroyed by this knowledge. My people, all dead? Yes, Commissioner, all of them. No one alive? None at all, sir. They're both in the same place emotionally, both mourning for their planet. Yeah, right. And, and yet all they can't see that. They can't see anything through their hate. Because that's all um, they got. Band of murderers. Stop it. What's the matter with you two? You hear Spock? The planet is dead. There's nobody alive on Sharon because of hate. Again, Kirk is trying to appeal to them with that same persuasive, idealistic rationality that has worked so well for him in the past, but it is not working. Cause you fought about no longer exists. Give yourselves time to breathe. Give up your hate. And Kirk does. This is what we talked about before. Despite everything they did, he said, you're welcome to live with us. Listen to me. You both must end up dead if you don't stop hating. I feel that line is too on the money, and yep. I kind of—I think we already kind of got there. You're an idealistic dreamer. And he exits, and Beale goes to the turbo lift. Beale, chase is finished. This is his last ditch attempt to reason with the person that he initially thought at the very beginning was the more rational of the two. Well, and I think even at this moment, and maybe I'm interpreting too much, I still think he likes Beale more than Loki. I in agree. This weird with you. way. Even though Beale did way more horrible stuff on the Enterprise than Loki's done. He must not escape me. Where can he go? Beale gets in the turbo lift and goes down, and they ask Kirk, Shall I alert security, sir? No, Lieutenant. Where can they run? Which I'm like, no, you should get security on these guys. They literally can destroy the Enterprise. But the problem is, like, where is security? Because when they're running through the corridors of the Enterprise, you're empty. And this is like, this was, this has always been such a great problem that I had with season three is that it just looked like the Enterprise was an empty starship. Like, like, remember how busy the Enterprise looked during the red alert and the Corbomite maneuver? Like, people were running all over the place. So, this scene now with Beale chasing Loki through the Enterprise goes on seemingly forever. Forever. Okay. And the reason for that is when they timed the episode out, it came up short. So that is why they extended the scenes of Beale chasing Loki and superimposed images, stock footage from bombing raids done in Europe during World War II. That's where all that black and white footage. That's what I figured. Yeah. That's where all that came from. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just so – it's terrible. And it's like, okay, we have – images with empty corridors and we're going to show more of them. And then there's this weird thing that both Beale and Loki look like they're running a marathon or something. I know it's so ineffective. Here are super powered individuals. How can they be so out of breath? The enterprise is not 26.2 miles long. And it goes on and on and on. And it's, it's terrible. Okay. Now, now the heavy handed part of the episode that people always criticize this, this, here you go. Uh, You know, uh, we get it. And and unfortunately, from a timing standpoint, I get why they had to like let these scenes run long. But it is uh, diminishing returns because uh, yeah. this is it's such a it's such a weak payoff to what I think was a, is an otherwise stellar episode. Loki gets to the transporter room, which he is 
probably not seen up to this point. And he knows how to activate the controls and where to stand and how to stand still during the beam out. And then, and then Beal gets in the transporter room and he too knows how to activate the transporter. Like that has always bothered me. Well, and I like too that Uhura says, Hey, someone's activated the transporter. And then Kurt goes, is anyone in the transporter room? They're like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We just said that they activated and then they don't, they could turn off the transporter before Beal gets there. It's just all dumb. It's all like we have a, we have to extend time and B we have to get to our ending that we wanted to set up, which is both Loki and Beal on the planet. And I think it's interesting, by the way, that, the African-American on the crew, Horace, is the person who says... Doesn't make any sense. Interesting. I never noticed that. Yeah. Yep, you're right. Their planet's dead. Does it matter now which one's right? Not to Lokai and Beale. All that matters to them is their hate. Do you suppose that's all they ever had, sir? No. But that's all they have left. Well, factor two, Mr. Sulu. And that is the end of Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. So this is the most downbeat ending of a Star Trek episode since A Private Little War from season two. This is also, like I mentioned at the top of the conversation, the last episode that Robert H. Justman worked on as a co-producer. So I don't know if I ever brought this up throughout our conversations, especially during the first season, but back in the first season of Star Trek, Gene Rodbury and writer Barry Trivers, who wrote my one of my favorites, Conscience of the King, previously tried to do an episode about racial prejudice called Portrait in Black and White. Mm. So over these years, it had been, you know, if you read sort of reference books on Star Trek and you read this title, Portrait in Black and White, a lot of people assume that that episode treatment eventually found its way to the TV screen mm. as Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Actually, that's not the case. This was a completely different episode. And this is one that uh, Roddenberry was really keen on doing back in the first season. Portrait in Black and White is about a parallel world where blacks ruled and whites were traded and sold as slaves. Mm. And NBC Standards and Practices said, that's going to be too controversial. We can't do it. Hmm. So eventually, you know, Gene Kuhn had this other treatment that he had, which eventually made it to, to Battlefield. And also in November of 1986, when Robert H. Justman was working on Star Trek The Next Generation, and he was trying to find directors that could potentially direct episodes of Next Gen, Justman pushed to hire Lou Antonio. Oh, who by that point was a very successful Emmy nominated director, but it just never materialized. Well, it's funny you should mention that because actor director Lou Antonio is about to materialize right here on Enterprise Incidents. We are very excited to welcome aboard Enterprise Incidents Lou Antonio, who played Loki. He is also a very accomplished director, a three-time Emmy nominee, directed episodes of Chicago Hope, Partridge Family, The Rockford Files, Pick Fences, Dawson's Creek, Party of Five, and Boston Legal with, you guessed it, William Shatner. Welcome Uh to the show, Lou Antonio, thank you so much for being here for our interview about the making of Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. 
Well, I hope I can make sentences. <laughs> so far, you have. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you tell us, uh, for starters, Lou, like, like, what are your memories about about how this came about, and what do you remember about reading the screenplay for the first time? Well, I love reading it uh, because it was quite thoughtful that there would be half white and half black. If during prep. If I mentioned anything, the writer was right there to change or disagree or agree or say, yeah, yeah, let's add that. They were quite wonderful to work with. That's really interesting. I'm curious because Loki is such a complicated character. What kind of stuff were you adding? Oh, God, that's been a few years ago. Sure. <laughs> uh, well, because I have a tendency uh, to start with who am I as an actor. And uh, so I dig into the character as well as I can, and sometimes add a background just so that when I say say a sentence to you, I believe it, and I don't know what colors will be in it. But as long as I've established my own believability and my own honesty, I just let it come out. Did you like doing things that were kind of political? Because this certainly has a lot to say, this episode. Uh, I would jump in anything and let the writer the audience determined what the writer was thinking. I was thinking more about what the character was thinking. So if you were telling me, oh, it's, uh, it's really about so-and-so, I would have to relate what my character thought was what I was. In other words, I wasn't trying to give you the inside story of the guy who came up with the whole thing. Right. I was trying to fulfill his glory of himself, of even coming up with something good. So, I, I just devoted myself to that. I didn't judge anything. What about the makeup? That poor makeup man. Boy, he said he said to me, wonderful man. He said, boy, do I have to be sober every morning. Because one <laughs> morning he started, he started putting the, the right on the left. And he, it just blew his mind. He said, okay, no drinking during this episode. That's that. <laughs> he was a great guy. <laughs> But you can imagine how hard that was for him to yeah. write that line down the middle. Oh, he, he was wonderful. Well, it must have been so easy to get smudged, and it's hot on a set, so people are sweating. I mean, that must have been difficult makeup to maintain. It was, and he was terrific. I wish I knew he could remember his name because he was top in his profession. Uh, his name, I could tell you, Lou, is Fred Phillips. Oh, my gosh. Yep, Fred Phillips. He was there from the beginning. <laughs> yes, and I had this stupid... Uh, humorous thing you ready freddie <laughs> <laughs> well well i want to ask uh about uh you know the other actor who had to wear that tricky makeup of course the colors were reversed on him but yeah. what was it like working with frank gorshin who played beale well i had never worked uh with uh, a quote-unquote comedian which is what he was yeah and uh and if you and my memory of it is that we really didn't work together, the characters, I mean. Mm -hmm. seems like uh, we were always chasing one. I was either chasing him or he was chasing me. But he, he, for a comedian, because I'd seen his comedy work, he was really a good comedian. Uh, I would just uh, kind of like stare at him through my character, trying to figure out what this character that was opposite me, what he's after from me. And so it worked. I used it as well as I could. One of the things I, I just love about Loki is how 
absolutely certain he is that he's doing the right thing. And from what you've said about developing that character, it seems like you put a lot of time and thought into that. Oh, thank you. Uh, I thought the episode was an important episode. Uh, the, the nature of what it was about, I thought was important. So, uh, plus, I, I, when I work as an actor, I really doubly like working as an actor because I can do my homework at home. Uh, I can sit at, on a couch in my living room and study and study and say, what's behind this? Why? Why? Why is he saying this now? You know, and, and I always enjoy that part of any uh, role that I take as an actor. And I had plenty of work with on this one. Oh, sure. You definitely did. The entire episode, Lou, is what they call a bottle show because the entire episode took place on the sets of the Enterprise. Now, back oh. in the late 60s, you know, those sets were really cutting edge and groundbreaking. So what was it like for you when you first walked onto the sets and saw the sets of the Enterprise for the first time? Since I didn't have anything to do with the sets and I didn't have any any observations on it. What? You're going to put that over there? No, it should go over there. I just shut up and just <laughs> tried to get into the character and what he was all about. Not That, that other stuff I left to the to the guys who were in charge of all that. You know what I love about the way you're describing this, Lou, is it sounds like when you work as an actor, you t you had to turn off all that director brain and just focus on what you were doing as an actor. And then I assume the opposite is true when you worked as a director. Isn't that an interesting statement? Uh, yes. There's a whole two different sets of uh, where I go as an actor and where I go as a director. And it all goes back to my training, I believe, as an actor, because of the digging that I have to do for both directing and both acting. And I enjoy it so much. Um, it's funny. So I, I started as an actor and then studied directing. So I did sort of, you know, not not at your level, of course, but but have experienced <laughs> some of that. And what's so interesting to me is how you need to be so narrowly focused as an actor and just worry about your part of the of the picture, you know. Now, wh why did you switch? <laughs> a couple of reasons. <laughs> I think the first one, I when I was younger and I was in college, I saw some really, really good actors and went, "Oh, I can't do that." <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I think that's too bad because I actually wish I had done. I mean, I still I still acted as I grew older too, but then I also just really, really loved the thinking about the whole picture, thinking about how the whole machine works. Well, what made you make that decision to go? Uh, did you start as an actor and then become a director? Or did you start as a director? Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I was an actor uh, because my brother Jim was an actor. So I always did what my older brother did, except he he would go to Oklahoma University on baseball scholarship because he was so good. He, he And I would go on a journalism scholarship. Mm. Because uh, <laughs> when I was in high school, and uh, what what precedes high school, junior high, yeah, I, I had a little column called "Lose Views." <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and one time, and we and Central High, where I had to go, uh, we had our own printing press, and it was just next door. So sometimes I would sneak something past the, the woman who taught journalism and who was supposed to keep a close eye 
on what was printed in the in the newspaper. Sometimes, and she was a beautiful girl, so guys were always flirting with her, and her mind was different places. So I could just slip something right over. I could walk five feet and hand something written out to the uh, department, the the printers. It was it was it was great great fun doing that. I must say. That's great. So what was it that made you make the decision to switch from acting to directing? I found myself, and I was getting the reputation. I was thinking about this just the other day. Uh, I was giving a representation of being a coach to uh, actors. When they had a problem, just somehow, somehow people started co- calling me. And I was coaching uh, singers, cowboy singers even, and and actors and directors, they found out I was a good coach. And that that just what I became known as, hey, if you need need coaching, call Lou. So wow. it all kind of started that way. Well, you certainly went on to have just an outstanding career as a director. Three Emmy nominations. Uh, one was for Something for Joey. The second was for Silent Victory, the Kitty O'Neill story. The third was for Chicago Hope. But bringing it back to the Starship Enterprise, uh, I couldn't wait to ask you this question, Lou. What was it like working? What are your memories of working with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, Kirk and Spock? Uh, I had worked with Shatner in New York on a naked city, barely in a scene with him. Uh, We were both just young New York actors at that time. And uh, then... I had a, a time that came up where I directed him in, in like a Andersonville scene where he was the prisoner. And we got along. Plus, I, I liked him so much because he would come in with the with a concept of the scene, which was always 100% wrong. <laughs> but he came in with such enthusiasm that it was infectious. And so I had a great time working with him that way because he would listen he he just wasn't pompous at all. He was just a good actor. And I really, I, I remember, oh gosh, yeah. I remember one time he had a long full page monologue and he just wasn't getting it. He was just reciting it. And I was directing. Uh, so I said, oh, let's just do another. And all I did was I walked up to him and just tapped his heart and hmm. stepped back. Bingo, he got it. Oh, wow. From then on, he had the reality and what it was all about. I I am just crazy about him. He's good. About, he has the best time in life. God. <laughs> what about what about Leonard Nimoy? Because, you know, Nimoy uh, obviously is playing a character who was very suppressed with his emotions and he's got yeah. the makeup with the ears and everything. Do you have uh, any standout memories of working with Nimoy? Well, just uh, Leonard always knew what his character was doing. and And it's bad for not bad, maybe I'll use the term, not that much fun if the character is restricted to a certain kind of reality of him, of the character, never expresses himself, just speaks. And and, and he's such a good actor, and such a good guy. I, I just wondered, I didn't want to bring it up to him. After all, he was doing it as a living. But uh, I always wanted to say, did you just want to burst out of that age they put you in <laughs> but i didn't he was such a good actor i just they all were 
they and they own it's just good that episode is as we mentioned before deals with uh, a lot of politics and what i like most about it is how complicated the way they look at those characters are is that more do you like to play characters that have more conflict and complexity in them well you you've just stated what's interesting about the character no matter what no matter if he's just a happy go lucky guy you know with not much depth or something and you, then I, as the actor, I said, what makes him happy so lucky? Well, what? Uh-huh. Why is he ignoring reality? Uh, you know? And so I, that's, that's the fun of it, is the chase, the chase of the character and, and why he's, what, where does he start? And then I try to follow the steps that I think that he would take. I find it great fun. That episode was directed by Judd Taylor and the producer of Star Trek during that third season was Fred Freiberger. So do you have any any standout memories of either of those two men? Oh, oh Judd, yes, yes, Judd, yes. He was, Judd was also a good actor. You mentioned right before we started recording that you've actually worked with one of our other favorite directors, Ralph Sinensky. <laughs> what I liked about Ralph, which was unknown uh, in my level of work, is I would call up the director who's already, you know, prepping and say, uh, can we have a Sunday rehearsal? And what I loved about Sineski is he was all for it. And I remember Mariette Hartley was also a guest on that. And I called up Mariette and she said, would you, she mind, let's do it. <laughs> so we would rehearse, the three of us would rehearse on Sunday and uh, go go to work again on Friday. So it was, I loved the, uh, the whole thing that happened that way. We were all so open to the other suggestions and rehearsals. And and Sinensky would say, well, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe it should be the other way. Maybe, the, maybe there should be a, a bit of sexuality there or something. And he was just great fun to work with because he wasn't tied up in a concept. I don't know how many people, if you know, the actor directors in television, episode television, that would meet on a Sunday and rehearse. Well, we did because of the caliber of those two people. Sure. It, it just made sense. You know, you go out of town with a show, <laughs> you go to New Haven, you find out what's wrong or what, and how you can change it and make it better. That's what we did. They were wonderful. What was the, the, the show you were doing with Sinetsky and Marriott Hartley? Could it be something called maybe Breaking Point? Is that possible? Yes. Well, I did one called Breaking Point. Ralph definitely directed that, and you and you and Marriott Hartley were in it. So I think that's yeah. what it is. It's 1963. You know, Ralph, by the way, listens to our show, so he's going to love that you're talking about him. <laughs> well, he, I wish, I wish him well if he's still with us because he, he is. Sure, he was sure great to work with. He, and, he and, is a great guy. We we uh, had him on our show six times. Oh yes, and you know, also he's glib. He's funny. He's sincere. And he's no horseshit to him. He's just a good guy. <laughs> and I'll tell you something, knowing Ralph, having talked to him a bunch now, my guess is he remembers every single thing about this show in 1963. <laughs> His memory is amazing. <laughs> um, lucky or unlucky, I'm not sure which. <laughs> well, Marriott Hartley actually did do a Star Trek episode called All Our Yesterdays, which is a terrific episode. We're, we're going to cover that in a few weeks. Oh, good. But Isn't she good? She's, just- she's excellent. Yes, she's wonderful. Um, I'm I'm curious just because I, I love talking to directors. Do you have advice? What do you think is the most important thing for a young director 
to study, to learn about, to focus on? Oh, I saw the worst example of how not to be a young director. I was directing, and they, we used to have what would be called a shadow, mm. somebody who wants to be a director. And this guy was from F, UCLA or something like that. He's a kid. And I said, let me see what you would do in this scene. And so I gave him a short scene to direct because he's there to learn. And he did it. And and then I said, uh, do it again. What would you add this time? And he did it exactly the same way. And he even yep. said to the actor, who was a good actor, no, no, raise your hand and do that finger thing that you did. That was good. So make sure you do that. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a death to a, a director, yep. to an actor to make sure of something because then other stuff can fall away. I mean, you really got to know what you're doing. Yeah, then they're just thinking about, oh, I got to remember to do that thing <laughs> rather than being in the moment and doing what their character would do. Right, and surprise yourself. But I'm just curious, you know, when Star Trek was canceled in 1969, and then after that, shortly after that, when it went into syndication, like that's when it got very, very popular. And mm -hmm. that's when it turned into just this thing that we're, we're celebrating after 56 years. So, Gosh. so what, like, what's your take, Lou, on just this life that Star Trek has taken on? Like, like, what's your take on, on all of that, on just how popular Star Trek still is after more than 50 years. I'm, I'm surprised, uh, not because of the quality, but, but somebody was smart enough to come up with the concept for Star Trek and then hold to it. I can remember uh, at one time saying, uh, who directed my episode, Judd? Who, who was Judd Taylor. Yeah, that was Judd. And uh, just saying to Judd, Judge, because I love the rehearsals to start with a lot of what ifs. What if the character really did this? And then uh, Judge just got tired of it. But he was a good actor, too. And he had heard that Plummer, Chris Plummer, old Mr. Humble, <laughs> would start uh, uh, doing a rehearsal or something for somebody. And uh, the director would say, well, what if? No, no. Just tell me what. Don't tell me what if. I can do anything. Don't give me what if, just say do. Well, that wasn't the way I worked. But Chris Plummer didn't need the way I worked. He's damn good. Well, listen, uh, Lou, we are we are so grateful that you gave us your time to talk about uh, not just your time in Star Trek, but your time in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And Lou's book, which is called Cool Hand Lou, his autobiography. Oh, why, thank you. Yes. Yes, that can be found on Amazon.com. So if you want to read all about Lou Antonio's career, please be sure to get Cool Hand Lou on Amazon. And uh, again, Lou, thank you so much for your time. We are very, very grateful that you shared you shared your memories here on Enterprise Incidents. Well, uh, thank you. And we need more guys like you. Well, oh, I mean, we really you. do. Thank find you out, so much. <laughs> find out what we all go through, you know. Yep. It, it was. I do appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Lou. Wow, I got to say, what a thrill to have Lokai on the show, to have Lou Antonio on the show. You know, I didn't realize until we were doing our research for this episode, you know, we always do research into our guest stars. His career is really phenomenal. It's amazing. And, and, and what's so cool, and I think it's so neat that we've actually had two 
what I would call actors, directors on this show. Obviously, Ralph Sinensky has that background in theater and knows how to work with actors and loves actors. And talking to Lou today, it's just it was the see you could hear the passion about creating that character and about work and about rehearsal and working with actors. And I have to tell you, for those people who don't know, that is not the majority of of directors in Hollywood, and particularly not the majority of TV directors. Actors are often mistreated and not taken care of and not collaborated with. And obviously, both Lou and Ralph are not those kinds of directors. And that was great to talk to them. Well, when he was talking about William Shatner and about how he helped him with the monologue, the the show that he was talking about was not Star Trek. It was Boston Legal, uh, which, of course, is where William Shatner won one of his Emmys. So, yes, Lou directed William Shatner in an episode of Boston Legal. And uh, I, I love that little story about how he helped Shatner find his uh, his delivery for that particular episode. But this is what makes makes us so proud is to have people on Enterprise Incidents who actually worked on the original series. And you're talking about a show that is, you know, more than five decades old. And uh, to have anyone on the show who worked on this on the original series is an honor and a privilege and a joy. And Scott, it was great to hear from Lou Antonio today and how he felt about this episode. But I'm curious about how other people felt about Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Starting with Fred Freiberger, uh, who did not, not mince words when he said, I think it worked out as a pretty good show. Oliver Crawford said it dealt with racial intolerance. And I thought it was a marvelous visual cinematic effort. The whole point of the story was that color is only skin deep. How could any writer not respond to that? Frank Gorshin, who played Beale, said, People say they love me for the Riddler on Batman, but I still think that particular episode of Star Trek was just superb. James Dewan said, By cloaking it as science fiction, it made the lesson more palatable. Battlefield might have been a bit heavy-handed, but it was still terrific. And then William Shatner said, let that be your last battlefield may have suffered from being too preachy and too simplistic in its treatment of the black and white issue, but its heart was truly in the right place. It's so funny because I want to go back to this idea of whether this is as subtle as a baseball bat. And I think it's funny. I showed this is one of the episodes I showed to my son who loved it. Oh, OK. Yeah, really, really, really liked it. And I think if you watch this episode and this is probably what my son got and go, oh, racism is bad the idea of racism is stupid and you get that and you get nothing else. That's awesome. That's great because the fact is it racism might be stupid, but we can't figure out how to solve it. And this is the more, the other thing about this episode is what this episode manages to do. I think is to make that very simple statement and say, this is why it's so hard to solve that it's so complicated and there's so many entrenched positions and there's so many different versions of the truth and there is so much anger and there are so many different strategies and tactics and perspectives and all of those things are preventing us to, from solving what should be a really simple thing. Just treat people like people. Correct. That's all you got to do. Yep. But it isn't simple. It's funny. But I, at one time I, I finally figured out like there's a big difference between simple and easy. Quitting smoking is simple. Stop smoking. That's it. Done. Is it easy? No. <laughs> Solving racism is simple, but it's not easy. It's not easy. And this episode, more than any other episode of Star Trek, I think, jumps into that complexity and doesn't give you a place to comfortably stand. 
even while it's delivering that very unsubtle, very simple message. Well, that's an excellent, excellent point because when you look at when you know throughout the decades, I mean decades, when people have referred to Battlefield as a heavy-handed episode, they look at its simplicity in that it's about racism. Yeah. And that you have these two guys who look different because their their colors are reversed. And that's that's the episode, that's the racism, and that they're fighting the whole time. That's the simplicity of it. But then you get to to just a more complex depiction of it, like why do we hate Lokai from the yeah. first get-go and that we like Beale from the first get-go, but then we see them intersect, but somehow we still kind of like Beale more than we like Lokai. And why are Kirk and Spock inviting Beale into their quarters for a drink, but not Lokai, who's down in the, in the lower decks dealing with the junior officers? So, you know, when we first talked about doing this episode and you said off camera, you know, there's a lot of subtleties to this episode that I don't think people are giving you credit for after doing this deep dive discussion. I realize you were right. There are a lot of subtleties that make Let That Be Your Last Battlefield a far more complex, provocative, and effective episode than even history has depicted it as when they refer to this episode as one of the many ways in which Star Trek dealt with social issues. I want to say one other thing, too, is all of the stuff that applies in issues of race, they apply to all sorts of other conflicts too. Like we mentioned at the very beginning that this is the beginning of the troubles in Ireland. Nothing to do with race, and yet a lot of the same stuff you could find right there. Absolutely. So that is what we think of Let your let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Of course, we know that you probably have a lot of thoughts too. We'd love to hear them on our Facebook page. Do a search for Enterprise Incidents, or you could follow us on Twitter, Enter Incidents, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. And, you know, when you're done leaving your comments there, you might want to subscribe to the show on YouTube or Spotify or Apple Podcasts, where you definitely should leave your reviews. And if you want to support the show, you could do it through Anchor, and you just go right to the show notes that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. There's a link there. You could support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. If you want to follow me, SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you're not done dealing with these heavy issues of race, you could go to the cinephiles. I already mentioned that we did both guess who's coming to dinner and in the heat of the night, but also the beginning of every year, we spend a couple of months devoted to a single director. And this year was Spike Lee. And we talked about do the right thing and Malcolm X. So that there you will get your fill of Steve Morris talking about issues of race. And you also did Planet of the Apes and maybe Planet, the Apes. Planet of the Apes again with a special guest, this guy. Uh, I like that idea. I love, love that idea. Make sure you follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance and make sure you what, do subscribe to our Facebook page, which is Enterprise Incidents. Uh, we love engaging with our enterprisers on our Facebook page. So thank you so much for listening. Make sure you share enterprise incidents on your social media platform. So more people can listen to and discover enterprise incidents. Meanwhile, our next voyage is going to be an interesting one. We're going to meet Garth of Izar in the episode, whom gods destroy. That's next on enterprise incidents until then keep going boldly.